0: Every little thing you think that you need, every little thing you think that you need, every little
1: thing that's just feeding your greed, oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.
2: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less my name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. And we're here with our brand new co-host, yes. ladies and gentlemen, T.K. Coleman is Woo! in the studio.
3: Yeah!
2: <laughs> All right. So I think officially now the Minimalists are a cult
3: since
4: T.K. joined.
2: So like the first person who joins was Ryan. That's just the crazy person, but it requires the crazy person to start the cult. Mm-hmm. Although we've had Malabama on mic for a while. She's She's just been this disembodied voice. Yeah. This beautiful, angelic voice ah. hanging out. She's actually not even here. It's <laughs> I'm just <laughs> a
5: figment of your imagination. Truly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I always joke
4: around about how uh, Mariah and I, uh, we belong to a sex cult. It's
2: just the two of us.
4: <laughs> but it's an awesome cult.
2: <laughs> I was wondering why you had Coombs Schneeberger um, branded on onto your body. <laughs> right. What a long brand. <laughs> you should have abbreviated it or something. Oh, shoot. TK, why are we here today? <laughs> yeah, why this? are we here, this?
3: man? <laughs> so we,
2: we talked on the phone a few weeks ago on the <laughs> podcast, episode 349. We announced that you're going to be joining the podcast regularly, whether or not it's every episode. We'll, we'll figure all of that out. And especially the next few weeks, Ryan is going to be gone for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. So TK will will be here don't worry, Ryan's not going any well, he is going somewhere, yeah. but he'll be back in a few weeks.
4: I'll just be off for a few episodes. All you gotta do is like grow your hair out, TK. Gain about 20 pounds and uh, yeah, you'll be like spitting image.
2: <laughs> now we were we were talking about this on episode three forty nine. I said, Why are we doing this? And you said, Because it is a hell yes. Mm-hmm. It's a hell yes, man. Let's talk about that.
6: Yeah. It's fun. It's fun, man. And I, I think desire and 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 the embracing of fun is a lost art. We require so many deep, complex, sophisticated philosophical reasons for the decisions that we do. And sometimes I like this. I love <laughs> this. This feels amazing. In the absence of a logically or morally compelling reason to do otherwise, mm. that's the only reason that's unique.
2: Mm. I love it. Make about Alden Watts when he talks about if you want to figure out happiness, find something that someone will pay, finds something that feels like play that someone will pay you for, Mm. essentially. And that's what's so fascinating with what we do here because much of what we do feels like play, whether it's intellectual play, emotional play, this sort of tête-à-tête that Ryan and I have together and now bringing you on. We don't agree about everything, obviously, but what is interesting are the ways in which we're able to disagree.
6: That's right. Yeah. That's right. You don't know who you're working with until you've had a chance to experience what is it like to disagree with one another. Mm. So many friendships, so many relationships are based on that awesomeness that you feel when you hang out and when you get along and you share the same convictions, but you don't know what your chemistry is until you see How things fall apart or come together when you don't see eye to eye, when you are irritated with each other, when you're delayed on a flight together—you know those Mm -hmm. types of things. That's the thing I appreciate the most about this past year that we've had together. Yeah, hundred percent. And
4: it's interesting because I think I have avoided in the past like disagreements with family or friends, like you avoid certain subjects. But what I've learned, you know, over the last ten years is like it's really important. To be able to disagree with someone and have and have a conversation and talk about it. I mean, that's more powerful than just living in a bubble
6: and ignoring it all. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The the way you can measure the tenderness of my heart towards you is the ease with which I can talk about a hard subject with yeah. you. You know?
2: Yeah, like the, the Taoists yeah. talk about softening your heart. Mm. And that's something that TK has really helped me with. And one of the ways that he's helped me is he's helped me get curious in a way that sort of detaches myself, mm. my self-identity with someone's judgment or with someone's point of view even, right? Yeah. I don't need to prove myself right uh, through self-righteousness, but I can listen to them if I get curious mm. about their point of view. Oh, I love yeah. that. I love that, man. Yeah. I, well, so one thing I learned from y'all
6: is just the value of bringing levity to topics that have a lot of gravity. I'm I'm an unapologetically serious person, but I think the more serious you are and the more serious your discussions are. And we talk about a lot of serious stuff, man, in, in some of our live shows. I mean, I was surprised at just how serious and weighty a lot of the mm. questions were that came in. And the ability to treat those questions fairly and respectfully while finding those opportunities to get people to laugh at themselves. And and to lead the way in that process by laughing at ourselves, mm. I think that's something that you guys embody really well. I think that's one of the things that your audience appreciates about you. And it's one of the reasons why I like working with you because, I mean, in, in this world of podcasting and so forth, it's just so easy to get caught up in talking about serious events with serious tones. And you kind of feel like you're doing something wrong mm-hmm. if you ever get a little silly or irreverent, but... I mean, really seriousness is, mm. is the pathway to the sacred and being irreverent is the best way sometimes to be respectful.
4: Yeah, you talked about being curious and I, that helps a ton when it uh, comes to difficult conversations with others. But then, you know, the other two things I think of is uh, having compassion, like trying to get to a compassionate place rather than like a place of anger. And to avoid that place of anger, the third thing I was going to say is you don't take things so personal. Mm. And I think that's where I used to really screw up. Someone has mm. a different opinion than me and I would take it personal. Because A, like now they're encroaching on my belief. Mm-hmm. So now I'm like, well, I can't be wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And 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 this is why I'm right. And here's why you are wrong. Yeah. So not taking things personal is uh it's that that's also huge.
2: And when those three things come together,
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know what happens? You cease to blame others. And when you start to feel that blame build mm. up within you and want to spill over, you see it for what it is. Yeah. It is immaturity. It is recognizing, oh, I'm not on a pedestal, right? And therefore, I don't need to blame you for some emotion, some sort of feeling that creeps up within me. Mm. Instead, I can get curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I like that, the blame. It's immaturity.
6: It's, it's not just immaturity. It's also self-negation. Sometimes we think about these things in strict moral terms, like, oh, you're saying I'm committing a sin? When I blame someone, oh, you're saying I'm doing something wrong Mm. when I blame someone? Well, we can be agnostic about that and say, look, I don't know if what you're doing is right or wrong, but I can tell you that it is a self-defeating exercise, Mm. right? When you blame someone else, you are holding yourself back. And so releasing other people from the prison of your bitterness is the best way for you to move forward. It's a self-interested act. You want to be generous with your capacity to forgive because that's what frees you up to to be the person that you need to be. That There's no one that's more weighed down or held back than the person that's just caught up in the cycle of explaining all their problems in life in terms of the world being out to get them.
2: Yeah. Mm. Mm. Now, I want to talk to you a bit more about this new format, about you coming on the team. What does that mean for our listeners? Because here's what we're going to be doing, especially with our... Patreon subscribers, our private podcast subscribers. You're going to be getting a whole lot more value now. In fact, the episodes are coming out on Mondays. You're going to be getting just one long maximal episode. You don't have to download two separate episodes. You don't have to get the public one on Tuesday and then a private one on Thursday. We're going to start your week every week with a dose of simplicity, a mega dose. If you're one of our private podcast subscribers, Mm -hmm. two plus hours every Monday, me and Ryan and TK and our guests. And then, like I said, for a while, just a quick programming note, Ryan will be out for the next few episodes. You'll see him come back in soon. So don't worry if you don't see him here for a little bit. He's not going anywhere. He'll be right back. I want to talk to you more about this format change here in a little bit, but I thought we would start today with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Alabama checks all of those. By the way, let us know if you are a Patreon subscriber, a private podcast subscriber, so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Stephen in Fort Worth, Texas.
1: A good work buddy of mine recently passed away without any warning. He seemed healthy one day. The next day he was on the ground at work having a seizure and a week later he was gone. Shortly after he died, they had a funeral and invited all of us from work. I was still in shock and I just couldn't pull myself to go. I didn't want to see him dead like that. I guess I wasn't ready for the closure they say a funeral brings. Now I'm feeling a bunch of guilt for not going to his final send-off and giving my condolences to his family, letting them know we all love the dude so much. I know you guys always say, don't do things because society tells us to. But is going to a friend or family member's funeral the ultimate social pressure? Something we're expected to do? And if we don't, we're being very disrespectful to that person or their family.
2: Now TK... I wanted to start with this question because you and I had a phone call recently and we were talking about different kinds of funerals. And what Mm. I realized from that conversation is that a funeral is sort of a celebration of letting go. And here's what I mean by that Mm. I moved out of the apartment slash condo that I'd been renting for the last five years that was in West Hollywood. And my family moved up to Ventura County. And in doing that, all of these emotions began to stir up within me because I realized I was moving on to something. And in order to move on, I had to let go of what had served me for a period mm. of time. Now, we're not talking about a person here. We're talking about a thing or a place, right? And in this case, it was both. And all of the sentimentality that gets tied up into a place or into a thing. And sometimes it makes sense to have a funeral. So I literally, when I moved out, the day I moved out, I had a funeral for that chapter Of my life. Mm. I was celebrating it in order for me to let go. I was appreciating it for what it was. And I find that we can do that for things as well. As we start to let go of material possessions, we can say, hey, thank you. This is something Marie Kondo does even. Thanks the thing for serving a purpose, but it's no longer serving a purpose. So I am going to let it go. I'm going to sell Mm. it, donate it, recycle it, trash it if I have to in order. To let go, but just because you let go of the thing doesn't mean you've let go of the thing. Mm. Mm. Because what happens sometimes is I let go of the physical thing, but then I cling to it in my mind. And that's quite often what we do with relationships. If someone dies, I remember when my mother died, obviously that was a traumatic experience for me. And because she was gone, she was physically, I had to physically let go. But mentally, emotionally, it took a while for me to let go. And realizing this many years later is that the celebration or the funeral isn't for the person who died. The funeral is for the people who need to let go Mm, of that person. When I talked to you on the phone recently, you were at a funeral. And we started talking about having funerals for people, for things, for places so that we can move on.
6: That's right. So the, the man who passed away in my life was my father's right-hand man. And although my, my childhood was filled with many great men, this particular guy, his name was Lorenzo, was the guy that was always there whenever my father couldn't be. Mm-hmm. And um, he, because he was always there, it was important to me in closing out that chapter of my life to be there for him at that moment. And I said at his funeral... The reason I came, as, inconvenience, as inconvenient and costly as it was, is because I knew for sure if it was my funeral, he would have been there. Mm. And so by being there for him in that moment, it gave me the opportunity to sort of close it out and say, here's what he represented to me. And here's how I can let his leg- legacy uh, live through me. But you're absolutely right. You know, um, death is a kind of letting go. And it's easier to let go when you take the time to consider who this person was or what this thing was and you, you evaluate what it meant to your life and how it shaped your story, that makes it easier to let go. And I think it's interesting that this question is coming from someone who says, I'm having trouble letting go. And I'm also the guy that didn't go. There's kind of a correlation there, right? Um, that's why we go, not because we're morally obligated to do so, but because we go for us. Now, to address this question directly though, Very quickly, there's this parable that Jesus tells where a guy has two sons and the father, he asks both sons to do work for him. One son says, no, I'm not gonna do it. The other son says, yes, I'll do it. The son who said yes forgets and never gets around to it. The son who says no has a change of heart later on and he goes and gets the work done. And the question that Jesus asks is, who was the good son? Was it the one who said the right things Or was it the one who did the right thing? And the answer was, it was the one who did the right thing, even though what he said didn't quite match that. Mm. And I think it's interesting because we can live our entire lives hating people, ignoring them, not being a good friend to them, but then we show up to their funeral and we say all the right things. Mm. And then we can spend our entire lives loving people, enjoying their company, and then we miss the funeral, because of some kind of unforeseen circumstance. And we feel terrible as if we fail them. And what I would say to you, Stephen, is I would care more about how I treated that friend when he was alive than I would about my inability or my failure to go to the funeral. Because the best way to honor someone's legacy is not to show up at a funeral service and say things that aren't in a match to what you actually did, But it's to treat them with respect and kindness and love when they're here, and then to allow that same respect, kindness, and love to live through you. You represent the highest values that they exhibited to you, and then you embody that in your interactions with others. I would let go of the guilt because either your friend is unconscious of you right now, or he's conscious of you. If he's unconscious of you, then he's not holding it against you. And if he's conscious of you, he's probably got higher. Dimensional things to be worried about than that. And he's probably wishing that you would forgive yourself and let that go. Honor him not by going to the event. That's already past. You can't control that. Honor him by taking a moment and saying, What did he mean to me? What were those qualities I loved about him? And how can I give him a head nod and pay homage to him by treating other people in that way?
3: Yeah.
4: It's Melbourne. That was such a fascinating perspective on funerals. It's not for the person who died. It is for the people who show up there. So, uh, Stephen, it sounds to me he's having trouble letting go of this guilt because uh, he wasn't, like he said, he wasn't ready to let go. He didn't get an opportunity to tell this, this man's family mm. what an important person he was. So, I mean, Stephen, if that's it, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, uh, making a phone call, maybe sending a letter or maybe saying, sending an email and just tell them exactly what you just told us. Hey, I really wish I could have it to the funeral. I wasn't ready to let go. But, um, you know, I'm ready to let go now. But I just want to let you all know how important this man was uh, at our work. Um, yeah, this made me think of Stan when we got like all that that sudden news from uh, we had a friend who passed away January 2014. We were um, just starting our 100 city tour and it was out of the blue. And he it's interesting because like he told me that he had a history of heart problems and then he needed to look out for his health, but he looked like a pretty healthy guy. Mm. Um, but he passed away from a heart attack. And like Josh and I got that news. I don't mm. even think we had our first stop yet. We were in we were in Tampa, just or St. Pete, just yeah. like, yeah, staying in a hotel. We haven't even had our first stop yet. And my first inclination was, let's go, let's go to the funeral. Let's go to the funeral. And and we were looking at it and it just it wasn't gonna work. Like it was, it just wasn't gonna work. And um, I didn't feel guilty about it. I, I certainly had a longing to be there and like, again, to support um, to support his family and to let his family know. But it was funny. I, um, I was talking to a friend who did go to the funeral and he went up to Stan's father, said, hey, I just want to let you know that uh, Josh Milburn and, and Ryan Nicodemus, they really send their condolences and they're sorry they couldn't be here. And <laughs> Stan's dad was like... Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Nicodemus,
2: <laughs> because because that says that, it all. Yeah, and and but, but so I mean,
4: great. all that to say is is that you know, uh, uh, Stan's dad knew. I never met Stan's dad, but Stan knew me, or I'm sorry, Stan's dad knew me through Stan mm-hmm. because um, he knew that you know we were close friends. So um, wow. yeah, it's it's okay. He didn't go to the funeral. Let that go. This guilt, I think, is something maybe you want to look at in the future, Stephen. Like. Guilt is a symptom of something that you've done wrong. I wouldn't feel shame around it. But this guilt you can use as leverage uh, to make a different decision if you should have, you know, a decision similar to this in the
2: future. And I would say also that is true and even doubly true for deaths that aren't people deaths, that Mm. aren't human death. Mm. But the death of a thing, if something stops adding value Mm. to my life, it has died in an important way although we continue to hold on to those carcasses. That's why I call the container store, I don't call them storage containers, I call them clutter coffins, because that's quite often what we do. We take our dead things, the things that are no longer serving us, and we put them in these coffins, and then we create these mausoleums, basements, attics, etc., where we store these dead things. Well, why? Because we never stop to have that funeral for them. And the way Mm -hmm. that you and I had a funeral for Stan, wasn't to go to his actual funeral. But there's an essay in our book, Essential, which, by the way, Stephen, I'd love to send you a copy of that book. The last essay in that book is called Live Like Stan. Hmm. And and what we talk about in there is he died when he was 36, but he lived more than most 86-year-olds. And I think that's something that's worth noting. The Health span of a person is not the same thing as the lifespan of a person. And so, yes, maybe he didn't have the longest life, but he had a life in which he actually lived. And so, Stephen, what is going to help you live here? Well, it's clear that letting go is going to help you live. So if you enjoy our podcast, we'd love to send you an audiobook version of Essential. I think it's our longest audiobook. It's like six or seven hours. Or if you want the book book or the ebook version, we'll be happy to send those to you as well, Stephen. Our next question is from Autumn mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania.
7: Over the past couple of years, I've decluttered a lot of stuff, a lot of different aspects of my life. But I do notice that a lot of the things that I tend to hold on to are just simply in order to not forget, you know, an era or people in my life. I think this clinging stems from my worry that if I don't remember these moments or people, I'll forget who I am and I'll lose a lot of meaningful memories. How do you guys let go of items and pictures that having the anxiety that that moment's now gone?
2: All right, I think we're going to we'll call Autumn. Let's go ahead and do that now. Hello? Autumn, hey, it's The Minimalist. What's up?
7: Hey, how are you?
4: Good. How about yourself?
7: I'm pretty good.
4: Awesome. You are our first live caller.
7: I was. That's very exciting. <laughs> yeah.
6: This is great. This is history being made right That's here. That's
2: right. So we have our okay. new co-host with us. TK Coleman is here. Autumn. We really loved and appreciated your question, mm-hmm. and I wanted to talk to you and really dive deeper in into the question in general. What what are you afraid of uh, in terms of letting go? Uh, you talked about letting go of the the memories, right? But what, what, is, what fear are you facing right now?
7: I think I'm scared of letting go of the memory because it, it feels like something that was a part of me. And if I let go of, of that thing and that memory, then am I going to lose a piece of myself too?
6: Mm. I remember one time I was giving a talk and someone walked up to me and took the piece of paper out of, out of my hand, took away my notes and says, hey, notes are good. Notes are fine. But here's what I want to know. What comes out of that mouth of yours if you only speak from the heart? My question for you, Autumn, is what do you think becomes of these relationships if you don't need like a a physical possession to remind you that it's real? Do you think you'll stop talking to them? You think you'll forget that they exist? What do you think you'll lose? Um,
7: I think that's a really good question. No, I don't. I don't think I'm, I'm going to lose that relationship, but I think if it's, if it's something of the past, somebody they don't talk to anymore, you know, you know whether that's because of, of me or them, I don't know. I still feel like mm. I, I have to hold on to it for some yeah. reason.
2: Mm. Yeah. It seems to me that you think forgetting is a bad thing. And here's what I'll say is forgetting is a form of letting go. And letting go is, in some ways, the ultimate love language. We have to forget so that we can move on. It's not that I'm recommending that you forget everything, but forgetting is a natural part of the process. I'm reminded mm. of something that Alan Watts talks about. Mm. He, um, he said, there's, you don't have to let go because fundamentally, there's nothing to hold on to anyway. Nature will take care of the letting go for you. Mm that is what forgetting is it's a natural sort of letting go but how do you love someone to love someone you know the, the real love language here is a letting go i'm going to let go of my concept of you my idea of your past self of the way that i wish things were that type of letting go autumn is how you show someone you love them because what does that do it makes room for actually being there in the present moment, to actually be there, to see someone for who they are, not in the past, yeah. not what they used to be. That's not even them anymore, right? And it's so there's a new you every day. It mm-hmm. feels like continuity along the way. But ultimately, you letting go of that past or of that memory or even of forgetting, you know, le- letting go allows you to be there right now for whomever, you're worried about forgetting
4: anyway. Autumn, I got a question. Do you have something on on your mind that like a specific thing that you're having trouble letting go mm-hmm. because of this memory that's tied to it? I'm just curious.
7: Um, yeah. So I used to have a very, very big collection of stuffed animals and mm-hmm. I've donated most of them, but I still hang on to a couple of my favorites um, mm-hmm. just because... I have that memory of when I got them, when my mom or my dad gave them to me and, and they were so excited to give them to me. So I just, I still hold on to them, even though mm-hmm. the stuffed animal like, in and of itself really doesn't bring that much or any value to my life. Just other than the nostalgia for, for that time when, when I was a kid and they were, they were just so excited to give mm-hmm. me a gift.
4: Oh, wow. That's beautiful. You know, this reminds me, and I always talk about the stein that my oma gave me. Mm-hmm. And she had a whole collection of them. And, uh, I took, I took a picture of the collection and I, and I kept one and I use it for spare change and other random things that I find in my pockets, (laughs) but you know, I don't want to let go of that Stein. Like I'm definitely, um, I have some sentimentality, uh, uh, with that, that, you know, I don't think I would ever let it go on purpose, but what I'll say is, you know, that stein, it reminds me of how loving my grandma is. It reminds me of the German heritage that we have. It reminds me of the trip that we went to uh, where she got to uh, show me her hometown where she grew up and friends and uh, that she had there. It was just a beautiful time. And every time I see that stein, it makes me think of that stuff. But what I'll say is I also think about that stuff even when I don't look at that stein. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think that these memories, I mean, this is awesome. Like you're, you're loving parents who were just, uh, nurturing you and, and trying to give you something to make you happy. Um, right. yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great, you know, having a stuffed animal or two, however many you have to, like, we're not here to put numbers on things, but there's obviously something that you think, you know, you might want to let go of, but you're afraid of, of losing this. This sentimentality, but Autumn, that's th- that is gonna live in you forever. That the way that your parents
6: treated you, that's gonna live in you forever. Mm. Can I can I give mm. an idea, Autumn? Yeah. So I I think when it comes to letting things go, it it tends to help if you can approach find a way to approach it playfully by turning it into a, a fun project that expresses your creativity and generosity. So one example I have of something that I struggle with is when people would send me cards especially for something that was really important. I always had trouble throwing the card away because I felt like I was throwing that person away. Mm. It felt so unappreciative Mm. to take something that a person spent some time looking around and thinking about, and then they spent money on it, took the time to send it to me, and I'm just going to throw it away. That just felt disrespectful. But what I started to do was I started taking pictures of the cards, Mm. and then I, I sent a text message to the person who sent it to me, And I write a quick little note on what that card meant to me. And then I can throw it away because I've now expressed to them what it means to me. And I've sort of captured it in a way that doesn't add to my clutter. One possible thing you could do is you can go through your stuffed animals. Let's say you've got 10 stuffed animals. You can take a picture with each one of those stuffed animals Or, you know, if there are three or four that you got at the same time, take a picture with those three or four that your friend from high school gave you. Then take a separate picture, you know, that your mom of the one with with, uh, the stuffed animal that your mom gave you. Take a picture of you in that and then take some time to maybe write a paragraph or two about your memory and what that meant to you. And then share that picture and that story with the person that that stuffed animal ties you to. Now what you've done is you've expressed yourself creatively you've shared something meaningful with the person that you're connected to. And you can have an easier time letting it go because you've captured the moment. You have that picture of you and the stuffed animal and that story and that common experience with the other person. I'm not saying that you have to do that specific project, but you want to approach it with that kind of playfulness and creativity Mm. so you can make it a little bit easier on yourself to let these things go. Does that help?
7: Yeah, yeah, it really does. I think that sounds like a really fun and and a really good way to let that person know how much, you know, that gift meant to me. I think that I love that idea.
4: You could start a new trend, uh, stuffed animal selfies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
6: Instagram
2: is waiting. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> Autumn, thank you so much for your question. Yeah. And, uh, we really appreciate you. Thank you, Autumn.
7: Yeah, I appreciate you guys. Take care. You too.
2: Good luck. Our next question is from Michelle in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho.
8: My question is for Josh. You and your wife have separate residences in different states. Does this mean that you both have duplicate items in your homes? And how does that work into the minimalist lifestyle?
2: So let me start by saying, Michelle, clearly you're not caught up on the podcast. It's probably from like man. three months ago. That she no, it. no, she, she just called it this week. Oh, okay. Anyway, um... Michelle, I'm just kidding. But we <laughs> he, Here's what I'll say is, yeah, Bex and I do live separately, although we don't live in separate states anymore. We did live in separate states for five years. At least we lived in separate states half the time. Mm-hmm. So we were together half the time. We were apart half the time. And that rhythm seems to work pretty well for us. Maybe not week on, week off, but two days on, two days off, etc. Mm-hmm. Works well for us. That's a rhythm that I'm not prescribing to anyone else. Although I would encourage folks to notice If a rhythm that they're currently in isn't working for them, instead of trying to force that rhythm to work for you, why not simply change the rhythm? However, that's not what your question is about. Your question is about duplicate things. And this presupposes that duplicates are necessarily a bad thing. Mm. Now, I have probably 10 pairs of underwear. They're all Mm. duplicates fraud (laughs) (laughs) and and so what i will say is that something being duplicate isn't a bad thing and so the heart of your question though is well maybe if you live together full time then you could get by with fewer things and i would acknowledge that yeah michelle if you and i live together we would get by with fewer things i would have to buy less Toothpaste. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have to have two tubes of toothpaste. We could just share the same tube, right? In fact, if all of the people here in this room—we have Danny and Alabama, and we have Professor Sean and Jordan No More, and Ryan and TK, and me—if we all just lived in, you know, a frat house together, would mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> be Isn't so it?
5: much coffee. Oh, <laughs> new reality
2: show idea. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, yeah, and it's like we all own nothing. Right. Anyway, what? We would have fewer duplicates, but our lives would be markedly worse for mm-hmm. us, right? Especially yep. for me. And so I think we have to take that into account. Now, here's the funny thing is the same tube of toothpaste. Like, yeah, I might have a tube of toothpaste at my place and Bex has a tube of toothpaste at her place. Mm-hmm. And, but if we had just had one tube of toothpaste, we we'd use it twice as quickly, right? Mm. And so, yes, there's nothing inherently wrong with duplicates. In fact, I think if you come to my house, you're going to say, oh, wow, this is... Yeah, you, know, you don't own much, right? Mm-hmm. But I own some things that might duplicate what is going on at Bex's house. Mm. She's her own individual, I'm an individual, yeah. and so we have our own individual needs, and there's nothing wrong with that. A better question for me is, does this thing add value to my life? Does it serve a purpose? Does it bring out the joy in me in some way? Does it amplify or enhance my experience of life? If so, wonderful. If not, that I'm going to let it go, regardless of whether or not it is it's a a duplicate. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I hear in Michelle's question is like, hey, you've got a set of pots and pans at your place. So you probably need pots and pans over at, at Bex's place too. And uh, I mean, you you two live much closer together now, so um, yeah, there might be some things that you used to have duplicates of that you no longer have duplicates of.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, and that will always continue to be true as. As I assess what adds value to my life. Yeah, you're right. Bex owns a whole lot more kitchenware than right. I do, right? Yeah, and if someone's going to cook dinner, you're probably going to go to Bex's to cook some dinner. Or no, I cook it <laughs> by myself, but I have one skillet. Right, 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 And that's all I need for me, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and if, if Bex wants to cook, great. Then I'll go over there and she can cook. We're still living together about half the time. We found that rhythm that works for us. But because that rhythm works for us, the time apart, yes, it does require some things Mm. that I otherwise wouldn't have, but I'm not willing to make myself miserable in order to simply own fewer things. That's not what minimalism is. That's not the heart of minimalism. TK, we were talking about this before we started recording. You were trying to see an announcement on Twitter and you noticed some tweet that popped up. Yeah, it was so interesting. Um, There was a quote where where you talked about
6: consumerism and, and, and someone says, well, well, you know, like you guys sell books and 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 things like that, and you have a podcast, and um and I forgot your response, but it was something like there's a difference between conscious consumption and yeah.
2: consumerism, right?
6: Yeah. And um and it was interesting because what was overlooked in in that response to you is that anytime you add the word add the letters ism after anything ism. and you turn it into an ism, mm-hmm. that ism changes everything. Yeah, you know, to put an ism after a word means that we're not just going to talk about that word. We're going to talk about a lifestyle in which everything that you do is oriented around that word. Mm. So consumption is human. Consumerism is anti-human, right? Those are two different things. And so I, I, I think, you know, um, th- th- this question is, it's, it's a little similar to uh, other questions I've had people ask me like, so the minimalists, living in California, that doesn't sound very minimalistic. California <laughs> is a really expensive place. And so people have this impression that, you know, if you're a minimalist, you have to live as inexpensively as possible. You got to find the cheapest place, the fewest amount of things. And it's it's less about the quantity of things that you have. And it's about understanding that efficiency is about optimizing for what makes you the best version of yourself. Mm. And there are things that you could do in the name of owning less stuff that could actually make you more inefficient and less happy and less effective in other areas of life. You know, you talked about the owning one pair of of, of underwear versus 10 pairs. Mm. Well, if you own one pair of underwear, but you're doing laundry every single day, well, that's wasteful in another way right? So mm-hmm. everything has opportunity costs. Yeah. So you always got to ask that question, compared to what? It's easy to say, hey, man, if y'all live together, you would have fewer things. But what are the other costs you'd be paying in order to live together? And how might that compromise your ability to serve? That's why we got to think about things in terms of what makes us better? What holds us back? Not the number of things that are involved.
4: Yeah. I, I think it's funny that people think that we don't see the irony in everything we do.
2: Mm-hmm. Everything <laughs> that we do is
4: blanketed by oh, irony. Oh, yes. Everything. And, and you know, one thing, too, that I've had to um, shift my perspective on, it. it is like, you know, putting some products out there, some physical products. And, uh, you know, we've done that with our books. Mm-hmm. We've done that with um, the bag that uh, we, we partnered with uh, Malcolm Fontier with Pact. Um, you know, all that to say is I've had to realize that, like, every single one of us we are selling something. Every single one of us. We're not, no one is not selling something. And the question is, is what are you selling? And is it meaningful? So when I think about the books, when I think about, you know, the bag, it's like, these are some really high quality. Like, I'm very proud to be like, wow, look what we made. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, if you, if you go, if you come at minimalism with don't consume, don't produce, well, you're a hermit. Like that's, that's what that is. And that's, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's when someone makes a judgment like that, well, Whoa, you sell books and blah, blah, blah. I can't even like give it a serious response because it's like, they're seeing what they want to see mm-hmm. and that's okay. They can see whatever they want to see.
2: Yeah. I, I remember my mom once told me, don't answer an unserious question with a serious answer right and oh you know, that's so good quite often what we will do is we'll have someone approach us with a criticism and i'm not i'm not going to throw out a blanket statement like all oh, these haters or critics or whatever trolls yeah sure. I, I, that that stuff doesn't right. mean anything to me like um i think those are those are thought terminating cliches as well to yes. dismiss someone. Oh, it's just a troll. No, it's someone who feels as though they have some sort of original thought. Mm-hmm. It's like when I walk walk by someone in the airport and they're like, hey, minimalist, I figured you'd be traveling with no bags. Thought you'd be riding a donkey. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and it's like, okay, you can feel that way, mm-hmm. but uh, and I, you're just trying to be, you're trying to joke or whatever, right? Right. But to answer it seriously is then to take all the fun, the humor, right. the, yeah. the joy out of it. And so what I will often do, I remember recently I posted a, a picture of like when I was moving, I posted it on Instagram and it, it was like four or five boxes in my kitchen of everything. And, uh, and several people, I think Danny was one of them, right? Several people were like, oh, you call yourself a minimalist <laughs> jokingly. And yeah. I, instead of like being defensive at all, I said, Oh, uh, it's not mine. I swear I'm holding it for a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> right, right. That's the best way to respond. It makes me
4: think yeah. I was yeah. in the store holding like a bunch of lemons, like half a dozen lemons or something. And this guy came up to me. He's like, oh, it's not a very minimalist amount of lemons. And I'm like, I'd have twice as many if I had more hands. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. That's so good. Michelle, yeah. thank you for your question. Let me send you a copy of our book. Love people, use things because the opposite never works. And in there we talk about our relationships. And one of those relationships is about our relationship with others and finding that rhythm with other people so that we can live together. And one of the ways we can live together is to live separately. It's like music. What defines music is not just the notes, but the space in between the notes. Mm -hmm. So if you enjoy our podcast, you'll like the audiobook version of Love People Use Things or if you want the book book or the ebook, we'll send those to you as well. We got some questions from social media. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Elaine from Instagram has a question for us.
5: Is there such a thing as a passion burnout? If so, how do we overcome it?
2: Let's talk about what passion is, TK. So Mm. passion does not exist without suffering. And so, in fact, the root of the word passion means to suffer. Quite often, we confuse excitement for passion. You get excited about an idea, and then as soon as you hit any sort of roadblock, any sort of slight discomfort, we stop and say, oh, I must not be passionate about this. I call that a good meal. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And yet, we think that that suffering means we can't be passionate about a thing. But I would argue that passion inherently requires some sort of burnout somewhere. Now, it might mean I'm burnt out with something that I was doing in the past, and I'm going to have to let go of that, that career, that way of living, that habit, those material possessions. I have to let go of them in order for me to make space for the thing that I'm passionate about. The thing that I'm passionate about is the thing I'm willing to suffer for.
6: I love that, man. I don't think you can be burned out by passion per se, but I think you can be burned out by a lack of alignment. So typically when we think about passion, we think about doing what you love. I love baseball. I love music. I love, you know, teaching children. And, and, And we orient our lives around being able to do that, what maybe get paid for it. But I like to think about passion as something that has four pillars. There's number one, what you love. There's number two, how you love to do it. Number three is when you love to do it. And number four is with whom you love to do it. Right? So If you get any one of those things wrong, you're going to have misalignment that leads to burnout. So let's say what you love is baseball and you've managed to achieve a life where you're playing baseball or you love writing and you manage to achieve achieve a life where you're writing. Well, how do you do it? Maybe you love writing, but you don't just love writing anything. What caused you to fall in love with writing is writing fiction. But now you're working a job where you're just copying dictionaries and you're depressed. Are you burned out by your passion? No, there's a lack of alignment between your what and between your how, or maybe when. Maybe you work for a boss who calls you up at three in the morning and says, I want an article on this by 6 a.m. Well, now you're working according to a rhythm and a cadence that isn't optimized for how you like to work or with whom you love. Mm. You know, Maybe you're working with people that are toxic, people that hate what they do, people that have different values than you. So there are ways to do what you love and still be burned out mm-hmm. because there's something about how you do it, when you do it, or with whom you do it that isn't the right fit for you. So don't just think about the thing you are passionate about doing. Take this sensation of burnout and look at it as an opportunity to step back and say, what are some opportunities I have to make adjustments in who I'm doing this with, how I'm doing it, or when I'm doing it, so that I can get into the proper rhythms, the proper relationships, and the proper routines. You get those things right, you'll begin to fill the fires of that passion again. Yeah
4: makes me think about, uh, oh, I don't know, with passion, I'm, I'm trying to like uh, say this without disagreeing with you, TK, because I think <laughs> that you could kill a passion, which maybe that is like, you know, burning out, getting burnt out. But that's through typically um, unreasonable expectations around that passion. So, you know, you expect it to go a certain way, you expect it to go at a certain speed, The worst one is all you expect to make money off of it and you expect to make a living off of this passion. And when you put all these expectations onto your passion, like that's a really good way to burn yourself out rather than just doing it because you love doing it and you love the creation that comes from it. So um, yeah, I think expectations is also
6: a way to burn out your passion. Really quickly, I think we do agree on this. I think you're exactly right. It's similar to loving a person, right? Let's say if you're in love with someone What's the fastest way to destroy that relationship? To treat that person as if they should be the end-all be-all to your life. Mm. The fastest way to destroy our friendship is to look to our friendship to meet all of my needs. There are things my wife can do for me that you can't. There are things that other friends can do for me that you can't and so on. And sometimes we expect our passion to be everything because motivational speakers make us feel like if you discover... What you love Mm. and you do it and you find a way to get paid for it, you'll be happy forever and you won't need anything else. And it's Mm. like, no, you still need good hygiene, good health, good friendships, good hobbies. You still need other things that you don't get paid to do that are enjoyable. You still need things in your life that aren't necessarily exciting, but they're meaningful in a different way. And if you expect your passion to be what passion is not designed to do,
2: Mm. then even passion itself will begin to feel depressing. Yeah. Alabama, we have a question from Twitter. Danish has a question for us.
5: What is the difference between minimalism and essentialism?
2: I hate to get bogged down in definition. So Ryan and I talk about what minimalism is. Mm-hmm. Minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things, so we can make room for life's most important things, which actually aren't things at all. Mm. Now, you could call that a definition, but let's get to the essence behind each of these. In fact, essence, essential, mm. essentialism. Nice. Yeah. Now, you can use these words interchangeably. And, and so I don't know what you mean by essentialism versus minimalism. Mm-hmm. But when I think of essentialism, I think it's often applied in business context. That's mm-hmm. one way to think about it. Or when we talk about what is essential in our lives. So mm-hmm. in the minimalist rule book, which you can download for free Danish, theminimalists.com slash rulebook. There are 16 rules for living with less in there. And one of those rules... Well, actually, several of the rules in the book, I think, will be helpful for you. But we talk about the no junk rule in particular. And in that rule, we talk about what is essential. Everything you own can fit in one of three piles. Mm. It is either essential. So the essentialist would have only that which is essential in our lives. Mm. Right. And one way, to, one way to think about that is an ascetic might be an essentialist. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, A minimalist, however, has something that's in the second category. We own things that add value to our lives. They're non-essential items, Mm -hmm. meaning I could live without my coffee table. Yeah. But it adds value to my life. Why would I deprive myself of that? Now, there could be a good reason to deprive myself of it, at least temporarily, to ask, does it actually add value to my life? And temporary deprivation leads me to a place of oh, you know what? The thing that I thought added value, the thing that I thought might be essential isn't essential Mm. at all. I remember Ryan used to work with clients and he would help them through their budgets Mm. and he would have them list these. What is essential? What's non-essential but value adding? And then this third category is what is junk? Yeah, And unfortunately, we mistake, we conflate the non-essential value-adding things and the junk. It's the reason the average American household has 300,000 items in it, because we think everything is essential. Well, of Mm -hmm. course, if everything is essential, then nothing is essential. In fact, I would argue that most of us have very similar essentials. We all need food, shelter, clothing, Education, vocation, Mm -hmm. transportation. But even those things manifest differently. Transportation for Professor Sean over here is taking the bus to the studio, or it could be walking somewhere, or it could be Ryan's Toyota Corolla or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, right? It transportation looks different. Clothing looks different. If I gave Ryan all my clothes and he had I had all his clothes, all of a sudden we wouldn't have what was appropriate. For us, and so keeping that in mind, what is essential to me may not add any value to your life whatsoever, or it could just be a non-essential. And so, it's a highly perspectival question: what is essential for you? And then, more important, what adds value to my life? Mm. And then, if it doesn't actually add value to my life, then it's junk. And if it's junk, well, then I let it go. Yeah. yeah. So essentially, what you're saying is, is
4: minimalism. Uh, maybe starts with the central, but it doesn't end with the essential. And like that is, that's actually really important, I think, for people to understand with minimalism is that this is, this is beyond just the essential stuff.
6: You know, I, it's, I think one of the things I get out of what you're saying is that distinction between biologically essential, biologically essential and psychologically optimal, right? Just because something isn't biologically essential doesn't mean it's not psychologically optimal, Music might not be biologically essential, mm. but it makes me a better person. Art might not be biologically essential. So many of the things that amplify the quality of our lives are things that we could technically live without, but it isn't about living according to technicalities, right? Mm. It's about living meaningfully and as fully as possible. Another thing I'll say about the definition piece is it's, it's sort of like the word optimism for me. If someone says, are you an optimist? My answer to that, it depends on how you understand the term. Mm. According to the way I define the word, if you give me the time to tell you what my definition of optimism is, I'm absolutely an optimist. But I've seen some people treat that word in a way that makes me say, oh yeah, if that's what you mean by optimism, I'm definitely not an optimist either, Mm. right? It's similar to the word Christian and a host of other things. Are you a Christian? Tell me what you mean by that word first before I commit to that. Mm. Because yeah, I am, but you got to give me a minute to tell you what I mean by that. But Mm. if you're just going to associate me with everyone you've ever met who wears that label, no, I'm a little more careful than that. Mm. The important thing is to live in accordance with your priorities and your principles Mm -hmm. and then allow whatever definitions you use to be secondary to that. Are you an essentialist? Are you a minimalist? Most important thing is, are you living the way you want to live?
3: Mm,
4: yeah. the the question Yeah, the question is, you know, not only do you survive, but how do you thrive? And yeah. that's that's really, um, again, what minimalism. I think Josh and I really, uh, yeah, try and kind of help people understand is like, yeah, you could survive without music, you could survive without other people in your life, you can survive in a cabin in the middle of nowhere by yourself, but you certainly aren't going to thrive. In fact, um, for, for, to thrive, to to be at peak health, you Mm. almost have to have some things in your life. I mean, there are, I don't know why, but I've seen like a couple studies over the last month about cabin fever and how legitimately like it's bad for mental health to just be by yourself for a certain amount of time. Mm.
2: And there are certain people who can transcend that, but we have evolved. So evolutionarily, there is a requirement to have people in your life, but even for each person, it's going to be different. All three people at this table and Mallory, who's disembodied but somewhere in the room, this ethereal (laughs) voice (laughs) floating around the room. The immaterial
6: essence that hovers above.
2: I'm an extreme introvert, and Mm -hmm. so I don't spend a lot of time with other people. But I do need those interactions with other people. In fact, I thrive with ambient people. I'll often work at a coffee shop, and I don't interact with the people, but Mm -hmm. there's always the potential for interaction. And there is even casual interaction from time to time, or someone will walk up and they'll notice me, and... And where we moved recently, oh, this is the private podcast. So like I say, I was up in Ojai yesterday. I was just working at a coffee shop, and this guy walks in, and it's the opposite of what TK was saying a moment ago. Because he's like, "Oh, do you live up here? I, we just came up here from LA uh, to hang out for the weekend." And I'm like, "Yeah, we, we love." It. He goes, "Oh, that makes a lot of sense." And he's like, "It's very simple here." <laughs> And so it's all about our interpretation of a thing. Some people are like, how could you move to California? You can't be a minimalist and go to California. Other people (laughs) are like, you have to move to California to be a minimalist. And it's like, well, no, neither of those things are true. Mm. The question is, what is appropriate for you?
6: Oh, man, I tell you, some of the horror stories I have around places I've lived and products I've purchased have proven to me that the willingness to pay a little more can go a long way in simplifying your life. There's no use in buying the cheap product or Mm -hmm. living in the cheap place just for the sake of being cheap if it creates a part-time job of having to look after it, follow up on it, get help, fix it when it breaks down, and maintain it over and over again. There is something to be said about paying the price for peace of mind.
3: Mm.
4: Ryan? What time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions, your comments, and anything else you want to send us. You can text it to 937-202-4654.
2: Yes, indeed. Now, during the lightning round, this is where we do our best to answer questions with a short shareable, less than 140-character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims and the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. By the way, thanks to our good friend, Social Jess, you can find all of our Minimal Maxims over at minimalmaxims.com. Looks like Mike has a question for us.
5: I'm bothered by my mother moving on to be with another man less than a year after my father's death. I'm trying to be supportive, but I'm struggling to accept this guy parking in my dad's spot on the driveway. Mm. Any advice?
2: Mm. So, This is fascinating, Ryan. Yeah, it is. Because I was talking about this a few episodes ago. I think it was episode 348. So here's my pithy answer for you. Maybe we can unpack it together. Nobody has the power to bother you unless you hand them that power. Mm. And by the way, I do this all the time. So this is not a judgment. It is merely an observation. Anytime that I am bothered, it's because I've given you that power to bother me. Here's the irony of this. And I haven't talked to you about it yet, although there's an email sitting in your inbox right now. (laughs) Um, we, We had Dr. Susan David on the podcast. And it was a wonderful episode, especially that maximal episode that we did with her. And my goodness, it was... It was a beautiful conversation I felt like we had, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the best moments was this moment where I started talking about how no one has the power to upset you Mm -hmm. unless you hand them that power. And then I went on to talk about my own expectations creating a prison around me. Mm. And she had a great line where she talked about expectations. And uh, then we shared that clip on... TikTok and Instagram, just a short little one minute clip of us having that dialogue. And Susan's people reach out to us afterwards and they were like, hey, uh, can you please take that clip down? Oh, wow. And she's like, we don't think this represents Susan's point of view. Mm. I said, well, yeah, it, it, it probably doesn't. I didn't post it to represent her point of view. When TK says something on the podcast, it doesn't represent my point of view. Right. When Ryan says something on the podcast, it doesn't represent my point of view. Now, I'm not going to be silenced. Here's the, here's the irony of this. When I got that email, what? I was upset. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I was <laughs> right. upset. That, How ironic. Yes. <laughs> right. Because I gave that power to them mm-hmm. to upset me. And... Mm. It's really hard to to understand that anytime that I get angry, anytime I get frustrated, anytime I get sad because of what someone else has done to me, Mm -hmm. all I've done is hand them that power to manipulate my emotions. Mm -hmm. And the same is also true with happiness. Ryan, you don't have the ability to make me upset. You also don't have the ability to make me happy. Only I have the ability to make me happy. Here's the quandary, though that happiness is already there. That is my default state, Mm. happiness. And yet, I often cover it up. Why? Because I have set an expectation or I've handed the power of my emotions over Mm. to TK or Mallory or Jordan or whomever. Mm. I've set expectations that make me miserable. It's Mm. not you who's making me miserable. It's the Schopenhauer quote. Mm. A man does not enjoy Paris. He enjoys himself in Paris mm. I always say about my wife I don't enjoy Bex I enjoy myself in Bex <laughs> <laughs>
6: ayo sex joke I'm gonna need a confession booth like yeah. right in the corner <laughs> of the studio oh, for man. each episode
4: you know the, the happiness is a default state uh, I don't know if we can I don't know if we can uh, you know go off on too much of a tangent here but it's funny because I think about a child being born And the default state is like discomfort, crying, needing, longing, wanting, Mm. constantly, literally screaming for attention. And it's not until, you know, they start to like try and figure things out Mm -hmm. that they start to really be happy Mm -hmm. and they start to... um, uh, yeah, like just have that joy that
2: that you see little kids have. I didn't say that it was the only state. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In fact, we talked about this. My favorite episode, we've done two amazing episodes recently. One was with TK called Political Clutter.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a private podcast episode. And another private podcast episode we did, it might be my favorite of all time. Mm. It was called How to Be Satisfied. Mm. And it was uh, episode 349. And we dissected this long article about How to Want Less by mm. Ar- Arthur C. Brooks. And in that conversation, you and I determined that happiness or satisfaction Mm. is the default state and dissatisfaction is also the default state. Oh, yeah. We did talk about that. Yeah. The only reason I bring this up is because I
4: think there is something to recognize or to form like a a detente with or a relationship with discomfort. When we're uncomfortable, that's where we're not happy, right? And when that discomfort arises within us, then um, when we project that out, like that's when we're not happy. But understanding that, uh, like getting comfortable with that discomfort, like holding space for that discomfort, allowing to be a little bit uncomfortable will actually lead you to this default state of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I got a pithy answer for this one. Um, Mike, when in doubt, choose compassion. Mm. When, When Mike asked his question reminded me of when uh my parents split up and my mom went and got a boyfriend and my dad went and got a girlfriend and I was furious. <laughs> I was so jealous. I was like, no, these are my parents. You know, um, I don't have room for two more parents. And uh I had like a real I acted like a real jerk. There was one girlfriend my dad had that I know for a fact. Like she Broke up with them because like I was so intolerable. Like mm. I was just, I'm so sorry. Hope if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry for being such a jerky little kid. <laughs> but but it makes me think though, if I could go back, I wish I could hold comp- compassion for my mom. I wish I could hold compassion for my dad because that would have helped me to at least take the edge off of that jealousy or the, or that that discomfort that I feel. You know, another pithy answer is um, compassion is an, an antidote to suffering. And uh, it sounds like there's some suffering going on here. And, and Mike, if there's any way you can find any compassion for your mom, because she's going through a lot too, um, that might help at least help you see it through her eyes rather than feeding into this, this emotion of, of anger or jealousy or whatever emotion you would call it.
2: Yeah, Ryan, you're, you're making me think of something with Ella. Ella's nine now, my daughter. And Bex and I went on a trip to Seattle recently, had an awesome time. And we were talking to her on the the phone after the fact. She was with her biological dad. And uh, Bex was like, yeah, we had such a great time. And you could see the look on Ella's face. She said, you you had fun without me? Oh, (laughs) Oh, man. And so she presupposes that she needs to be there in order for Bex to enjoy herself, for Mm. me to enjoy myself. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. we can't have joy. Mm. And all Bex did was turn around. She said, hey, you've been gone for a few days. You've been doing the summer camp thing. Mm -hmm. Have you had any fun without us? Mm -hmm. And goes, oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, TK, you had a really interesting pithy answer that I made even pithier here. So if you want to read that, and then maybe we can expand on it a little bit. Yes, sir. Your heart can't afford the damage
6: damage caused by judging and resisting. Your heart can't afford the damage caused by judging and resisting. Mm. One of the phrases that jumped out at me about this question is, you said less than a year. My mother moving on to be with another man less than a year after my father's death. And so there's a kind of evaluation that's going on there Mm. that maybe my mother should have taken more time before jumping into a new relationship. And there's an underlying assumption beneath that judgment, something like To move on quickly is to move on flippantly. And C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery, which is the idea of judging the goodness or badness of something based on how old it is, how new it is, how fast it is, how Mm. slow it is, right? Because there are fast things, there are things that move fast that are terrible, things that move slow that are good. There are things that are very old and terrible, things that are very new and good and vice versa. One way we can kind of see how this is a manifestation of that is look at the opposite. Criticizing someone who takes a long time to get over the death of a loved one, mm-hmm. right? Someone's spouse or a significant other passes away. It's two years later and they're still sad. Haven't you moved on yet? Oh, yeah. Haven't you moved on yet? Come on. It's, yeah. it's already been two years. And maybe that's because we imagine ourselves in that situation and Mm -hmm. we imagine that we would have moved on by then. And so we project our own pacing onto them and say, you should be over it by now. Well, judging someone for moving on too quickly is similar to judging them for moving on too slowly. One makes the assumption that to move on quickly is to move on poorly. And the other is to move on slowly. I mean, to move on uh, quickly is to move on flippantly. Mm. And so what I would say is allow your mother the space to move on in the way that is best for her and to know that this too is a part of her healing process. There is no disrespect to your father in how much time it takes her to move on to a new relationship. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that her moving on too quickly might be less of an indicator of anything going on with her and more of an indicator on your own readiness to embrace this. And that's okay. Maybe it's too quickly for your comfort level. Maybe it's really hard for you to celebrate this relationship when you're still letting go. And what I would encourage you to do, especially if you have uh, you know, uh, the kind of relationship with your mom where you can talk to her transparently, I would say something to her like, Mom, you know I love you and I have your back and I respect you and I want you to be happy. And so I support what you're doing, but I just want you to know it's hard for me. Mm. And I'm not ready yet. I'm, I can't leap through the roof in excitement over it. And, and I just want you to know, if it ever seems as if I don't have your back, please understand, I just need more time. And so maybe I can't be at all the things. Maybe I'm not ready to go to the movies with you guys just yet, but just give me time and please respect my pace as I respect yours, do whatever you got to do, mom, to live your best life and just give me a little time to process. And I think she'd understand that.
4: I love that, man. Like just having an open conversation yeah. with your mom about it. Like that's, that's a great, that, that's, that's a great idea. I mean, again, uh, we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, like when you can have difficult conversations with someone in a mature way, Yeah, um, that's, that's huge. So yeah, that's, I love that. Um, what you're talking about to TK is clinging clinging to uh these judgments clinging to you know his his uh his dad's parking spot and i wanted to say something about that to autumn as well like when we cling we are preventing ourselves from moving forward we are when we cling we're getting dragged by something and um yeah i i think you know what that means for for um uh uh mike yeah for mike here is like If you want to move forward, when you get these emotions that you're clinging to, like really observe that and really ask yourself, is this the emotion that you want to foster? Is this the emotion that you want to like just stir up inside of you? Or can you look at that and be like, okay, you know, thank you for this, for this memory of my father. I, you know, this feeling is a symptom of how much I miss my father. I do miss my father. And then try to find a way to move forward because clinging
2: again, it's just, it's going to, it's going to drag you. I can tell you that if I died tomorrow, I would hope that my wife was able to move on within a time frame that was suitable for her. I'll never get another business partner. <laughs> 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 All right. Before we get on to our other segments here, Malabama, what do you got for us?
5: Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners.
7: Hi, my name is Sarah Powell and I am from Boise, Idaho. I was just calling because I saw your guys' um, video on Netflix about a year and a half ago. And the next day after that, I had my own packing party and packed down my house. Um, I'm also a mom of two small kids. I just got finished listening to your guys' podcast about being a minimalist with kids. Um, I have found that I do a lot less cleaning since there's a lot less stuff for my kids to make a mess with. Um, I've also found that my kids use their imaginations more and um, actually get the use out of the toys that they do have. Um, As far as like gifts and stuff like that... I've asked my family to gift them experiences. So we have like a year pass to the zoo, a year pass to our um, one of our local museums here. Um, stuff like that are always
8: great gift ideas. Hello, this is Megan. I am 27 from Tempe, Arizona. And I just had a comment. So I just got out of a divorce And had to move into a one-bedroom apartment. I previously lived in a three-bedroom house with lots and lots of stuff. And when I moved, I decided I would only take the essentials with me. And so now I'm in a very empty apartment. I don't even have a couch. I've been sitting on the living room floor. Um. But my comment was I have made a list of the things that I want to buy for the apartment and I am waiting two weeks for any item that has been added to the list. And the list, everything has a date on it from when it's added so that I know that I'm waiting enough time to see if it's something that I actually need or if it's something that I can go without.
2: Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Before we get into our other segments, we have these simple living segments we're doing with this new episode. Well, with this new format, we have our new co-host here. TK Coleman is Mm -hmm. with us. And uh, we're going to read some more about less before we get into our new segments. We've got 10 segments for you today on the back end of this episode. This first one, you're familiar with already. It is called More About Less, today's article. Now, TK, you're familiar with More About Less, but this is where we read an article, an essay, a tweet, something as a jump-off point for discussion, Hmm. something that could be controversial. And I think this one might be today. Uh This one's from one of my favorite thinkers. It's from Kapil Gupta. (laughs) I can't put a link to this in the show notes because this is from one of his private discourses. So you're just going to have to listen. Is he going to be like, man, why are you reading my private stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is on the private podcast, so Mm. I don't think he's a patron. This is called The Power of Hatred by Kapil Mm. Gupta. Mm. Man's life moves not according to what he likes, but what he hates. Hatred is more powerful than liking. If a man hates artificiality, He will move toward genuineness. If a man hates society, he will move away from conditioning. If a man hates lies and inefficiency, he will move toward truth and efficiency. Like is lukewarm. Hatred is a fire. Mm. Hatred is a far more reliable guide than like. Hatred is far more clear than love. Hatred is easy to recognize. Love is virtually impossible to recognize, for it is wrapped in many ribbons and packages. Love is a chameleon. Hatred is simple. Love is complex. Hating the things mentioned above can lead to the light. Hatred of another person leads to darkness the human gets nowhere because he likes and dislikes thus he remains in the middle the middle is the most anemic of all places buddha was unfortunately incorrect the middle way is not truth fire and transformation happens always at the outermost reaches truth is not for the lukewarm at heart. Let's talk about this. <laughs> I, I love how Kapil Gupta is
4: so confident, like, to put down the Buddha. <laughs> 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 like, that's some confidence, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I Let think, me tell you where the Buddha got it wrong. <laughs> hey,
6: can I give a, 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 a one-sentence thing on the Buddha right quick? And then I'll, I'll... The middle way was extreme before it became cliche. Mm. Sometimes when an idea has been around for a long time, it's infiltrated every aspect of our culture and thinking. We tend to react and respond to it as if that's obvious. But once upon a time, that was not obvious. That was revolutionary. That was the extreme understanding that the world needed at that time. And now, because it's on every Hallmark card, yeah. and because every thought leader has been shaped by a world in which that thinking has permeated culture, we think it's obvious now. I love that. Yeah.
4: So, like, there's actually something really awesome about the Buddha who came up with this idea Mm -hmm. and then Kapil Gupta to recognize like this has been around to the point where it's a cliche. Let's, let's look at it a different way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's spot on. And I will just say that what he's talking about here, when he's talking about love, he's talking about the sort of cultural repackaging of love, because when he says love is complex, he means the worldview that we have about love now, Mm. where it's, I love my car or I love tacos or I love this carpet that's in here, right? But that's not what we mean when we're ta- well that's what we mean now when we talk about love., yeah. but to love someone is one of the simplest things. It's to see them for who they are without trying to change them. And if that is love, that isn't complex at all. But we have complected love. We've interwoven all of our expectations, our standards, our desires. Our yearning, our lust, our cravings, our happiness, our dissatisfaction. We've intermingled it all. We've interwoven it into the weave of love. And we call that love, mm. we've complicated love. We made it so complex that it looks nothing like what real love is. Now, let's talk about hatred mm. for a moment. Because I was so fascinated, even just by the, the title of this thing, right? Yeah. We're talking about hatred being... The most compelling thing. And I, I think that is often true. In order to find out what you what compels you, you sometimes have to figure out what repels you. So if That's you don't right. want to use the word hate because it also has certain cultural connotations, mm-hmm. but you know what repels you. Yeah. I mean, physically, if you walk across some puke on the sidewalk, it repels you, right? Yeah. And sometimes you have to figure out what repels you to figure out what compels you. What drives you Forward. I loved earlier, TK. You were talking about these four pillars of passion, and it was like what you're passionate about, you know, when, when etc. The one thing you didn't talk about was why. And I understand why you didn't talk about the why, because the why, in that sense, the why matters a lot, but in that sense, it doesn't matter at all. Why I'm so compelled by writing doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that I am simply compelled to write. Mm. Why is not as relevant there. The other things that you mentioned are, in fact, the writing itself is my why. It doesn't require a deeper why because the honest answer is, I don't know why I'm compelled to write. I can give you a narrative overlay and say, I I talked to students about this uh, in the How How to Write Better writing class that I teach. And when I talk to them about this, It's, yes, there's a communicative side of things. You want to communicate something. There's an expressive side of things. You want to express something, something emotive. And so there might be some sort of why there, but the real why is that because it's compelling to me. I'm compelled by writing because it's compelling to me. And I didn't get there until I figured out what repelled me, honestly. Mm -hmm. I figured out that I was repelled by the sort of vapid corporate structure that we were in. I was repelled by... Pointless meetings, I was repelled by interfacing with customers. Yeah. Uh, corporate jargon, mm-hmm. right? All, yeah. all of these things repelled me. Synergy. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's talk about a bit about hatred. Yeah, man.
7: Yeah.
6: Well, whenever I talk to students about discovering and doing what makes them come alive, it's usually the case that the majority of students feel like they have no clue what they're passionate about. And many young people feel very stressed out. Well, how do I figure out what I'm passionate about? And we've talked before about what to do when you don't know what you love. And and there are lots of things we can say, like don't limit the concept of passion to just one thing. You can have many different passions. We've talked before about exploring your curiosity. But one of the most helpful practices that people can employ if they don't know what they're passionate about is to say, well, what pisses you off? What angers you? Because Mm. when you think about passion, passion doesn't just mean what warms my heart. Passion is about what fires me up, what gets a reaction, what makes me come alive. And sometimes the things that fire me up are things that fall in the category of the so called negative, the things that make me angry or jealous or whatever it may be. And there are powerful changes and beautiful works of art that have come about as a result of someone simply observing something that angered them. And they took the time to allow anger to be their teacher. Why does that bother me so much? Because to be angry about something is to have a vision or a concept about how things ought to be or how things could be. And whatever it is you're observing, it contradicts that vision. And if you just take the time to sit with that anger, not condemn it, not push it away, not say, oh no, this means I'm unenlightened. I need to go to confession. I need to repent of it. Sit (laughs) with that anger and say, oh, wait a minute. What is it showing me about my values? Because as I've heard it said before, what pisses you off is your biggest clue to the very possibilities that you are here to bring forth.
4: Mm. Man, like listening to you read uh, Kapil Gupta's uh, uh, essay there, I was like, instantly I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what do you mean? Like, hate is the biggest driver. Like, I think about... um, my relationship uh, with my wife, Mariah, like I love her. Like I'm, I'm motivated out of love to uh, create a really lasting relationship, but I could also look at it as I hate to be alone. And, you know, I hate, um, I hate not having someone in my life. I, I hate that feeling of like longing mm. to have a partner next to me. So um, yeah, that is, it is fascinating. The, the one thing that really stood out that helped me kind of grasp what he was saying is when it comes to um, politics because when you go to someone's Twitter feed, who's like really into politics, are they are they spouting all the good things about their candidate and like why you should vote for the candidate? Are they just spouting all the hatred towards the other side or towards the opponents? Right. And there is there is some promotion of good ideas yep. and, and and morals or whatever it is, but nine times out of ten, it's usually going to be the hate that they have for the other side or the other sides uh, or the opponent, which um. Yeah. Fascinating
2: that we spew the things we hate more than we spew the things we love. We're so repelled by the things we hate that we are compelled to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like think about enjoying a movie
6: or a restaurant. You go there and you have a normal experience. You have a problem-free experience. Mm -hmm. That's really awesome. But the tendency is to say, well, that's what I paid for. Mm. That's what I'm supposed to get. But if you have a negative experience, that's the one where you're more likely to write a review. Never have I been more inclined to write a review than when I've been displeased, right? And so you can look at that as bad and say, ah, man, humans, we're just so screwed up. Or you can say, well, wait, how can I make that work for me? Right? Because to be angry is like starting a fire. Mm -hmm. You've got this big, beautiful fire there. You can just let it burn wildly and let everything around you, including you, be destroyed. Or you can say, hey, let's cook a meal. Let's warm up the family. Let's go have a bonfire. Let's go toast marshmallows. And let's have a conversation around the fire. It's about what you do with the
2: fire. It's not about analyzing the moral value of it. Yeah, that's Mm. beautiful. So we got a new segment. It's called Talk Aboutables. (laughs) This might be a current event that pops up, something that sort of brings that fire up in us. In fact, Mm. I have something that I hate that I want to talk to you about in a moment. But we'll get there. First, uh, one programming note. And so this is part of our Talk Aboutables segment. We've got, uh, as you noticed here, we're doing these maximal episodes for our private podcast. They're going to be two plus hours every week. They come out every Monday now. You don't have to subscribe to both feeds. And we're going to be Uploading the video version straight to Patreon now, as opposed to a private YouTube link. And that should improve the overall. Listener and viewer experience because now we can incorporate any music that we talk about if it's an added value segment which is coming up later in this episode or if we have a clip that we want to share oh check out this video we can embed that in the full episode and you're also going to find that these episodes aren't themed anymore at least the maximal episodes aren't Mm. the minimal episodes we're only gonna we'll tweeze out one big question like so for example this week. We'll take Stephen's question from earlier. So for the pre-public version, we'll just call it Funeral for Things. We'll have that one question, and then we'll have maybe a lightning round question in there, etc. But they're not going to be two separate shows anymore. We wanted to make it as simple and user-friendly for our private podcast subscribers to say thank you. We heard you loud and clear because you've been asking for this for a while. And also, we want the video version to match the audio version The If you have access to the video version of the podcast, if you're one of our private podcast subscribers with the video version, you're also going to see we have a segment called Photo Friday Home Tour. So each Friday, we're going to be sending out a photo of one of our homes to show you that minimalism is not about austerity. And so the first photo I have here, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it's not a perfect home that you might see in Incredible Kitchens magazine, which we'll actually talk about. That's This is for a different segment we have called... Checkout Line Wisdom. And I'll talk to you about that as well. But you can watch the video the ver- version of this straight on Patreon. You'll get it in your email as well via the Patreon app you can watch. It, you can watch it through a web browser. Or you can listen to this episode via your RSS feed. And all of our archives now, including the first 300 public episodes, are all available on Patreon. All available to our private podcast subscribers, audio is available all the way back to episode 000 i believe we did a triple zero episode to start the podcast so a lot of changes there the biggest change though is we got tk coleman here Woo! and we've decided that this is a hell yes for all of us because you're bringing in a different perspective you're bringing in a perspective that works also works really well with Ryan's and my different perspectives. Mm. And I almost look at this like a three-legged table in a way, right? Mm. Or maybe the, uh, the analogy is it's like we're bringing Kevin Durant on. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like a really sturdy tripod. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah. You know what he's saying with KD? By comparing me to KD, he's saying, we, can, we won before you, we're going to win with you. And we'll win after you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's really
6: saying. <laughs> so this is a gift to Dang. you,
3: KD.
2: <laughs> I mean, oh, that's great. So, so with, with Durant, you know, I guess that would make like us Steph and Clay. Oh, and, totally Steph and Clay. Splash Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what I like about this is we had a great team already, right? Yep. And this isn't like a total rebuild. Although I'll tell you this, one year ago, so this this episode comes out August 1st. One year ago this month is when Mallory and Emma and Danny all joined the team. So we've been working on a sort of rebuild over the course of Mm. the last year. And now we have the final part to come into all of this so that we can continue to add value and help people heal their relationship with stuff, their relationship with themselves, their relationship with money, their relationship with their values, their relationships with other people. Mm. And TK is going to help us do that. He's going to provide that light that we have been providing as well it's just a different perspective in fact light is a great metaphor here we're in the studio and there are four different lights that are all over our heads right now you can see it on the the wide shot if you're watching the video version of this right and all four of those are are required in order for us to provide the best video for our private podcast subscribers Mm. and yet i would say all three of us are going to help provide It doesn't mean that we have to play every single game together. You know, Katie takes a game off. Clay takes a game off, right? But when they come together, they create something special. Something that is greater than the sum of the parts. I I love that, man. I mean, I hate that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I am indifferent towards that. (laughs) I can't believe it's been a year since we brought Mal and Danny and Emma. Like, that's Wow. Unbe- unbelievable! Like we I think blinked. Like we blinked. I know. I think it's a good sign that it feels like it was just yesterday. That's a good sign, right? Yeah. 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 Real good sign. Well, let's give yeah. them a round of applause for yes. one year, y'all.
2: Oh, uh, awesome.
5: thank you. Does this mean we get paid now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Shut up, Mallory. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> She's kidding. They are paid very well. We are, yes. we are taken
5: care of. So that was definitely give, a joke. They've been given
2: raises twice. That's right. As I've well, never had that
5: happen in yeah. a, a workplace setting. And, and they
2: promised to back, back up the Brinks truck for me. <laughs> <Yes>.
5: <laughs> it's
2: an empty Brinks truck, though. Yeah. We're minimalists. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've already minimized the Brinks.
6: <sighs> well, TK, as we discussed the contract, we just want to let you know we own nothing. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and now you own nothing. <laughs>
2: Congratulations. Congrats, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Let's talk about our first talkable here. Danny, you alerted me to this, so I need you to step up to Malabama's mic so we can talk about this. Mm. Yeah. You told me that BMW is starting a subscription service. They're basically charging people $18 to subscribe to heated seats now? To use the hardware. Yep. So, BMW...
0: And this is not in the United States. I have read an article, and then I read an article saying, hey, it's not everywhere. It's in only select countries, which, same thing. They're doing this to consumers. It's
2: a pilot program. Yeah.
0: So in, I think, the new, whatever series BMW has now, the new models come out. They have all the hardware for it. But to use your heated seats, which it's installed, everything can be available with the subscription package. So you pay $18 a month to be able to turn on your heated seats.
2: Now let's talk about what is there, and maybe TK, you can help me with this. Is there a charitable view that says why this would be necessary? Because my Toyota has heated seats. And if I had to start paying a dollar a month, I wouldn't, I would just stop using the heated seats in my Toyota. Mm. Help me understand The other perspective, when might it make sense for someone like BMW to charge 18 bucks a month to turn on my heated steering wheel or something? So I have one clarification question. Is this a change
6: for BMW? Were they once offering this for free and now they're saying, we're going to charge you for what we previously gave away? Or are they saying, hey, we're introducing a new premium service we've never provided for before and here's the cost"?
4: They are uh, creating microtransactions for things that have always been there. It would be like, another way to look at it is, let's say all of a sudden that your car, they were like, you can't use your power windows unless you give us $18. Like, it's all there. So with BMW, it's always all been there. Mm -hmm. They're just now creating microtransactions for different features in your car. And my my guess is that they're going to go with more than just the heated seats.
2: Professor Sean, you had a... Yeah, it's worth noting BMW has done something similar, maybe even worse
5: before, though. Um, A year or two ago, they tried to charge to allow um, drivers to use Apple CarPlay, which is an interface with your iPhone. So they were trying to charge to allow you to use another company's software as well, not just BMW's software. That's yucky. They they blocked the CarPlay unless Mm. you paid them.
6: Mm. So interesting. So, I want to frame my answer with the following explicit stating of my assumptions here. (laughs) Fuck.
5: Well stated. Get
4: get ready to bleep all this out. (laughs) This podcast is said explicit. So,
5: (laughs) right.
6: (laughs) I'm the OG from the OC man. (laughs) Um, I think BMW and any other service provider should be totally free to offer at whatever price they want, whatever product they want to put out there. Mm. I also believe that customers should be totally free to feel whatever way they feel about it, criticize it however they want to criticize it, and take their money to competitors if they don't like the idea. And I think competitors should be free to enter the market and say, hey, customers, we're going to offer you a better alternative. And I don't think government should involve themselves in the business of protecting the big business and saying we're going to artificially insulate you from competition by giving you advantages that your younger, newer competitors don't have because there are so many problems created when we do that. Now, Mm -hmm. given that framework, I quote Milton Friedman, the economist, when he said, the beautiful thing about free markets is that you're not only free to succeed in the way you want to, but you're also free to fail.
3: (laughs) And when you put out a
6: bad idea as long as you're not protected by government where you can get away with doing whatever it is you want to do because you have a monopoly, that means the customers get to decide if they want this or not. And so it's BMW's job to say, well, here's what we want to do. Here's what we think is a good idea. And it's the customer's job to say, nope, not worth my time, not worth my money. And so I can theorize about it all day long, but if the customers don't like it or if they get annoyed by it, and there are many business ideas like this, they get to say no to it. And you better believe if it doesn't work, BMW will check themselves really quick because they can't afford to lose more money than they make, right? They'll say, oh, okay, that didn't work. And 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 in the history of business and entrepreneurship, there are lots of examples of old companies and new companies that thought they had a good idea. They put it out there. The customer said, that's stupid. That's unfair. We don't like it. And It corrects itself over time. So I'm very curious about it. Mm -hmm. I'm very intrigued to know how will the BMW customers respond because I'm not a BMW customer. And it's easy for me to philosophize about products that I wouldn't buy in the first place. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've learned from being on the entrepreneurial side is you got to be real careful about creating your products based on the opinions of people that wouldn't buy anyway, Mm. right? You want to create products for who your customer is. You want to know who your customer is. So my question is for the BMW customer. How do y'all feel about it? You don't have to tell me. I'll see what you do with your dollars. Oh, that's beautiful. I love
4: it. So the charitable explanation is like, hey, a private enterprise can do whatever they want. And if this is what they choose to do, then great. We don't have to support it. Mm -hmm. um, But yeah, we, we shouldn't, sit here and say that, like, oh, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. It's like, no, they should be be allowed to do whatever they want to do. And the market will determine whether or not mm, it's
2: a good idea. I want to add some more nuance into that, though. and uh, The market will determine longer term, but sometimes what will happen is there's a bait and switch. And that's the Mm. thing that I'm afraid of. Like, if all of a sudden Toyota, unbeknownst to me, told me that, oh, by the way, you've had heated seats in your car for the last eight years that I've had the car. But now we're going to start charging you. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's not what I purchased. And and so then we have to hold those companies to task.
6: Yeah, I, I think
2: sometimes
6: what gets left out of the economic equation when we express fear that people are just going to pimp us and they're going to charge us whatever. They're going to charge us $20 for gas. They're going to charge us $50 for gas. We fail to remember that even if you are the greediest entity on earth, the purpose of greed is to get something from people. And so once you reach the point where you charge so much that people simply can't afford to pay you, you lose. Because you can force me to pay more than I want to pay, but you can't force me to have more than I have, Mm. right? And there comes a point where if you charge me more than what I have, even if I'm desperate, even if I'm willing to sacrifice, there comes a point where I simply don't have it to give, right? And so the market is a process of discovery. Doing business is a process of discovery. And sometimes we treat entrepreneurship and business as if it's having all the right ideas first. But you don't know what's going to work until you look, until you experiment. You say, hey, maybe there's some opportunity here to do interesting things with microtransactions. And you experiment and you see how the world responds. So one possible charitable interpretation here is you could say, BMW could be thinking about 10, 20 years down the road, how microtransactions might change the entire business, right? And they might be thinking, if we do things by like isolating the different parts of our product and make them available through microtransactions, maybe that allows us to pay fewer costs here, charge our customer less there, or improve the product exponentially so that it's worth even more than what they're paying. Let's see if this works. We don't really know. I think it's easy to say, oh, they're just being greedy and trying to squeeze as much money as they can. And I think that's possible, but we have to remember that greed simply cannot afford to charge whatever price it wants independently of the consideration of its own needs. If I'm greedy, it's because I want something from you. And if I'm so greedy that I charge you what you can't afford to pay, then I lose too. So I got to bring my greed down just enough so I can get away with it. And you determine
2: as a customer what I can get away with. I got one more talk aboutable for you. I wrote this down, Ryan. I'll never buy these again. Mm. And we're sitting in them right now. Well, TK and I are. Yeah. We don't give a chair to Ryan. He hasn't earned it. That's
4: right. Not yet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sittings for closers. One day. <laughs> you talk don't like these chairs? Switch. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I really, really like these chairs okay. that we're sitting in right now. Yes. And so the problem that I have is I will never buy. Brand new office chairs ever again. Yep, I figured this. (laughs) I figured this out the hard way, Mm. and Malabama has is is saying yep because she's been experiencing like selling some old chairs that we tried to buy. Yeah, Uh, and (laughs) in that process, what I've learned, and I even figured this out for my home office, is you can find really high end like Herman Miller Aeron chairs. That would usually be, I don't know, $1,500, $1,700 for a chair. And you know what? I'm not saying that chair isn't worth it. Right. If you're going to use it for 10, 20 years, whatever it might be. But you can, there's whole offices that go out of business and they just put them all up on Facebook Marketplace. You can find radically reduced prices. I'm talking 50%. 70% for a very gently used, almost new version of what we're sitting in right now. So here's the mistake that I made is I bought these new. And if I were to buy them again, I would find the same exact chairs Mm. in a gently used version Mm. on Craigslist or Facebook marketplace or any of the other resellers. What are some of the ones that you use, Malabama?
5: Offer up has been my
2: favorite. Mm. And so you'll find whole offices like, X, Y, Z company went out of business and they have 40 chairs they're trying to get rid of. Mm. And they just want to get rid of them. They want to get something out of them. And quite often it's first come first serve. So it's like, hey, if you come pick them up this weekend, we'll give them to you for 200 bucks instead of 1200 bucks. And so I will never buy brand new desk chairs again. And I think that applies to other things in my life as well. Mm. My vacuum broke This weekend. Mm. And we tried to get it repaired. Wasn't repairable. It makes this awful noise. It sounds like it's screaming at you. Mm. Like, why are you cleaning? (laughs) (laughs) Is this the little handheld one? Uh, No, it's just like a a Dyson vacuum. We've had for eight or nine years. Yeah. And when I went to replace it, I found a used one, a refurbished one. Mm -hmm. That was about a third the cost. And so... Here's the funny thing that you and I know about refurbished things, Ryan, because we used to work in telecom. Quite often, the refurbished product has a better track record than the Hmm. brand new product because it had to go through a more stringent process because it already went through the brand new process. Something went wrong along the way. So in order to refurbish the product, they had to send it through the process again. It's almost like it's been double checked. You know, Santa made his list and he's checking it twice and he's fixing Hmm. my vacuum (laughs) and selling it to me for one third the price. This is important to me because ours just, we had the same vacuum and
4: ours just broke. Okay. So... Shows that that vacuum, the lifespan's about eight years on that
2: on that vacuum, and it was a great vacuum. It I is, used it yeah. regularly, Plus. and then I tried to get it repaired. It we it worked for a little bit, and then it broke down again. Mm. And so what I learned here is, yeah, I would rather repair it before I have to replace it. And if I have to replace it, why not downgrade to something refurbished? By refurb, yeah. And don't forget, guys, have a funeral for the vacuum. <laughs> That's right. Thank the vacuum. That will be the
6: key to right. let it go. Have a funeral. Take a picture of it, write a little story about what it meant to
3: me. (laughs)
6: Paragraph, yeah.
4: Oh, that's good, TK. Um, Thinking about working, you know, on telecom and having the refurbished phones, it was funny because, like, my remembrance of those was, like, it was a certain, I guess it was a certain brand that someone would come in, hey, my phone's not working, I'd look it up, I'm like, oh, there's a refurb. (laughs) Like, there was, you know, a couple specific brands, but... um, for all intents and purposes, though, I think your perspective is absolutely right on refurbished stuff. It's like, no, this is like, it's, it's gone through the quality control. It has gone through. And like you said, it's been checked twice. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. We have a new segment here, a new Simple Living segment. Ryan came up with this. We were driving. We we're out in Nashville. We were just talking about things. And people often come to us and want to know about a thing. Should I keep it? Should I hold on to it? Should I let it go? So we're calling this segment Amass It. Or trash it and the first one we have is something special by the way you can we want you want to hear yours we did one last week with Danny's bobblehead PK <laughs> yeah. Hernandez bobblehead you still have that you got rid of it nice We yeah we, we decided to it's trash nice. it yeah. now when we say trash it we don't mean literally trash it you can right. sell it donate it it's just a to trash it because it rhymes right yeah. and so trash it means recycling and do whatever you can to get rid of it if you have to trash it that's fine It's better than holding on to a thing that is getting in the way. So, I do want to talk to you about, well, we have Bev from Ohio. And I've got this. Ryan, I'll let you read it. Okay. And then you'll describe what is in this photo. And by the way, if you're watching this, if you're watching the video version, you'll get to see the photo right here somewhere above me. Right, Jordan? Above my right arm somewhere. (laughs) Now, Josh... I really
4: want to do the other segment that I'm trying to talk you into, which is you are or are not the father.
3: We'll talk about that later. (laughs) All right, here we go. Hi, this is the (laughs) first time I have a friend
4: doing the men's game with me and we are having a blast sharing our picks and laughing at what we have stashed. The best thing so far is my mom's... Oh, my God. <laughs>
2: All right, Jordan, right now is the time to put the picture right here. It's... Oh, my God. Put <laughs> it right here. Put it right here. <laughs> my mom's gallstone that she saved from the 1970s. Let, let's say that... Let's put it in a better perspective here. She saved from the 1970s. Oh, right. Yeah. That's how old this gallstone is. Yeah. Woo. You don't have to hold it up. It's yeah, on the screen. It'd
4: be a better picture on the screen. Um oh my goodness. That it's like uh it's like taking the idea of saving teeth to a whole new level. <laughs>
2: like, I saved my kidney stones. Like <laughs> Let's, wow. talk, let's talk about the mentality that goes behind this because to me, it's easier for us to laugh at this. In yeah. fact, it's even easy for them to laugh at it, right? Which I that's why I shared. I and by the way, we asked Bev if we could talk about this on the podcast. And uh, you can send us your Amassador Trash It question, just send it on over to podcast at the uh, Let us know that you are a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize that. Now, it doesn't have to be something as absurd as a uh, what is it, a gallbladder stone. A gallstone. A gallstone? Yeah. What is that? Yeah. A gall- I mean, it must yeah. be a gallbladder. So, so a, having a gallstone is something that we want to get rid of, obviously, mm-hmm. in our body. Our body wants to get rid of it. And then yet, she held on to it for 50 years. And they're playing the minimalism game. So they're letting go of some things. And one thing they're letting go of is a gallstone. Oh, my so, goodness. So TK, can we talk about the psychology behind holding on to something? Like that, you guys ever heard of relics? Yeah, in in the history of religion,
6: relics is a thing. And when I say relics, I don't just mean like, oh, here's like a cross or here's a piece of a garment that's been around for hundreds of years. No, I mean like body parts. Yeah. Hey, here's a hand. Here's a hand. Right. Yeah. Like that's the thing. Relics are a thing. It it makes me think about um, a retired Hall of Famer, Oakland A's baseball player, Ricky Henderson. He talked about how I think, you know, because he grew up poor and when he signed his first contract, he had like a check, a million dollar check. And he had always envisioned having something like that. And he put it in a frame and had it up in his room for a long time until like the GM called him and was like, Ricky, I need you to cash that check. (laughs) (laughs) So he got like a a fake version of the check made and then hung that up and actually cashed the check. But (laughs) sometimes we hold on to something even though he moved from poverty to wealth he still didn't cash that check because he 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 wa- he wanted to hold on to something that reminded him of a very important part of his story which is just evidence of what we talk about a lot it's it's never about the thing it's about the story behind it because in one moment he had a story that this is a symbol representing my ability to transcend my circumstances. And then after his GM called him, he, he had a different story. This is a thing that's going to get me in trouble with my boss. Once the story around that thing changed, his relationship to it changed. You know,
2: I think it's one of the keys to, to letting go is the stories that we tell ourselves prevent, prevent us from moving on because we cling because of those stories. The stories that we tell ourselves that I need to keep this or maybe I'll need this just in case. I mean, that is the ultimate just-in-case item. Now, why, why would someone hold on to it? Well, just in case I want to show my grandkids. What, your Like No one actually wants this, right? Look at
4: the size of this thing. You could just like put it next to a, a penny or a quarter for scale, next to a banana. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is something that if it's that fascinating, you can take a picture. But I want to know the story that was being told around this gallstone. Yeah. What's even more fascinating, do you see here, TK, it says, give to, and I don't know what that is, but there's a note
2: on who (laughs) the (laughs) call should be given to. Yeah. 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 And so we hold on to these things. So send us your amass it or trash it. We'll tell you whether or not it makes sense to let go or to keep it. Because sometimes it makes more sense to hold on. You feel the societal pressure to let go of something that might be adding value to your life. And we're not going to tell you to get rid of everything. We're not the deprivationists. We're not eliminating everything. We eliminate the excess. Clearly, this is excess. Your body knew it was excess. And now you know it's excess. And I'm proud of you for letting go. Amen. i got another new, simple living segment for you. It's called Checkout Line Wisdom. Hmm. I was at the grocery store the other day. And I picked up this magazine. I saw it while I was at the checkout line. And the reason I wanted to start this segment is... This is the ultimate place for impulse purchasing. It's the reason they put candy at the checkout line. Anything that's going to make you want to purchase it immediately. One of those things are pretty glossy magazines Mm -hmm. with beautiful photos, nice typeface, type setting, and usually they have some sort of tips and tricks, some supposed wisdom. Sometimes that wisdom can be helpful. A lot of the time, it can get in the way. So for this segment, I've picked out one thing that I haven't read. I just read the headline. And we're going to determine together, is this some wisdom that we could apply to our own lives? Is there wisdom within the vapidity or is there vapidity within the supposed wisdom? Mm. The the, the capitalist in me is just dying right now that you keep holding up this
6: magazine for the camera and they're just getting like that free look. The free (laughs) optics, (laughs) it's killing me right now. They're not paying for nothing.
2: ah, that's funny yeah
6: so (laughs) I
2: feel you on that here in the magazine this is five tricks for an always tidy kitchen Mm. number one tuck it away if you have a lot of stuff but don't want to see everything all the time well this is uh, for a for this family kitchen the designer used wooden pocket doors to conceal. So here's the thing. Part of it was great. I agree with the tucking it away, but right. you don't need just last week we were talking to a professional organizer, Dr. Raz, and she, not Dr. Raz, but Dr. Raz, she she was um telling us about like decluttering from where you are. You don't need to go to the container store. You don't need to hire some sort of home consultant to Uh, build some new storage for you. There's nothing wrong with those things, but we often don't take action because, oh yeah, I would hide everything away on my counter. If I just had these 17 criteria met on my checklist, then I'd have the perfect home. Well, no, I've always done this. Ryan, you remember my last kitchen. It Mm -hmm. was the tiniest kitchen. I didn't have a tiny home. I just had a tiny kitchen (laughs) and we tucked away virtually everything. Yeah. Now, part of that had to do with letting go of things that weren't serving us anymore. So we had room to tuck away everything else, but we didn't leave things on the counter. Why is that? Because we set up a boundary that nothing was allowed on the flat surfaces in the kitchen other than a kettle and a coffee grinder. That was it. There was nothing else on top of the counters. We had other things. If we wanted to use them, we brought them out. So there's some wisdom in here, but then it gets ruined by consumerism. Right. You can only tuck things away if you build your kitchen using an expensive designer, basically. Number two is organize by function. The three things I always consider are flow, function, and feeling. By considering toasters and coffee makers along one wall, the rest of this kitchen stays clear for serious cooking. So, flow, function, and feeling. Hey, by the
6: way, I didn't get to say this tweet for the first one. Uh, It should be F it, don't tuck it. (laughs) Come on now, come on. I don't don't want to say... don't don't tuck it? Like, bucket, don't tuck it? Yeah, okay. If you got to tuck it, maybe that's a sign that you should...
2: (laughs) 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 And throw it in the trash. Yeah, oh my goodness. And so we... Yeah, I think the way the space makes you feel, it's not quantifiable. Mm. So you've got... You could sit down and make a pro and con list... But ultimately, what it comes down to is how does it make you feel like you want to take on a new job, you want to buy a new house, you want to move to a new city. Yes, you can have all the pros and cons. The neighborhood's very walkable and uh, it rains this many days of the year, whatever it is, right? I like this. I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this. But ultimately, when you get there, how does it make you feel? Mm. You can't, you, you can definitionally talk about it, but you can really only talk around how it makes you feel. Mm. Yeah, because
6: all that other stuff is really just the story we tell and sell about a decision that we've made to do what feels right for us.
2: Mm. Number three, skip cabinet pools. What? What the hell's a cabinet (laughs) pool? Right, yeah. P-U-L-L, not P-O-O-L. Inspired by Scandinavian-German minimalist design, this designer ditched Traditional cabinet uppers in favor of one long stretch of storage in this city kitchen. Touch latch doors keep it streamlined. Okay. I'm looking in the cabinet here, though. And the cabinets themselves are very organized. But as we talked about last week, organizing is hoarding. Yeah, Organizing enables Mm -hmm. us to hoard. Mm. So there's a difference between organizing because back when I was a hoarder, and I was, I was probably a stage three hoarder. Mm. But I was very, very organized. So you wouldn't have come over to my house and said, oh, my God, this guy's a hoarder. You would have said, wow, they are very organized. Is this a container store? (laughs) Because we had so many boxes and bins and ordinal alphabetized systems of storing things. Storing is the benevolent way to say, Hoarding, in many instances, not always, storage certainly makes sense. I use my cabinets for storage now. I used to use my cabinets for hoarding. Not that hoarding is bad or morally evil or anything like that. What we're simply saying here is that organizing alone isn't going to fix your problem. Right. It's going to make your problem look a bit tidier. In fact, it may keep the problem around longer. It certainly did for me. And so, what I would say with this article, I'm not even going going to go into the last two points, is that there is not wisdom in this article, and it's certainly not worth the cover price of of buying. This <laughs> oh man, magazine. I thought
4: yeah. you were a little hard on point two. Yeah, me too. I I <laughs> thought I think there's a take. I think there's some takeaways, but I do see your point where it's kind of a little bit vapid. Like like the point number three is it doesn't say, hey, here's how to. Have less stuff. It's like here, here's how you can hold even more stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
6: yeah. But I, I agree. It's not I, you know, I, I will say, you know, as someone who's just doing a move, some some something in defensive organization is the process of having to organize the things you have. Really helps you think more critically about whether or not you want to keep it, because if you 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 can be an organized hoarder or an unorganized hoarder, right. Right, If you're an unorganized hoarder, how do you sort out this mess? How do you know what to keep or what not to keep? It's the process of putting things where they're supposed to be according to the function you want them to have that helps you say, oh, I guess there is no place for this. I guess there is no use for this. I I guess this is just something that I have, on, have around because it makes me comfortable or I never wanted to do the work necessary to figure out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. But now maybe am having to move or having to be organized, I realize, yeah, I need to just put in the time to figure out where a landfill is, or I need to put in the time to figure out who I would donate this to. So sometimes organizing can be kind of a, a precursor.
2: Yes. To, yeah. it, the problem yeah. is when it stops there and we say, oh, I've organized all of my things. I've better hidden them in my cabinets, my sure. basement the unusable guest bedroom now that is really just a storage locker or even putting the things in a storage locker in an organized fashion. But I do agree with you that we can start somewhere and organize those things. But the best way to stay organized is to get rid of most of your stuff. And that way, there aren't so many things that you have to organize them Hmm. in the first place. Hmm. Another new segment here. I love this, man. This one is appropriate. Yeah, It's called advertisements suck. What a great idea. And so we're going to review a sucky ad. Here's the first one. Jordan's going to put it up on the screen right above me right here somewhere. And this one is from Burger King. And what I like <laughs> about this one, I'll pass it around here so you all can see it as well. Mm-hmm. For those of you who aren't looking at the uh, the screen, but uh, it's a ad. Can, TK, can you describe what's going on in this photo? This is a live reaction right here. Yeah, I don't know what this ad is, but I want a
4: Whopper now.
6: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I already have next week's example. You're going to love it. Terrible ad. Okay. Burger King Whopper. Advertisements. And there's a, under the word advertisements, there's a picture of a really neat looking burger. It looks very good. And then under actual burger, it's got most attractive angle with cheese, slightly fluffed up. And then it's got a couple of terrible looking burgers.
2: Yeah. And so what you have here is reality versus advertisements. Advertisements sell you... Well, advertisements their main job is to what? Seduce. To be seductive. Now, what's one way to think about seduction? To seduce is to promise something that you can't possibly deliver on. We've all had Whoppers here before and... Mm -hmm. It's been over a decade since I've had one, but I will tell you this. I remember them tasting delicious. However, they never looked the way they looked in the commercial or the print ad. Mm. And so when I see this advertisement versus reality, it shows me that what they're advertising isn't what you actually get when you pay for it. You think you're getting one thing. This is, in a way, a sort of bait and switch. And I think we see this all the time in advertising. Companies will pay millions of dollars to affect a feeling, an emotion, to stir up a thirst or a hunger, a consumer thirst or a literal hunger in this instance. And then the thing they deliver to you, it can't possibly live up to that perfect advertisement because the food that's in that advertisement is fake food. Mm. There are entire documentaries about this on YouTube now. You can see the people who put together the, the food ads. You know, they're using glue instead of milk and cereal, or they're using certain plastic products inside the burger on you know, a Whopper or a Big Mac or whatever. I don't know if that's what's actually in this, but it's clear that you've never received a sandwich from any fast food restaurant that even somewhat resembles that sandwich you see in those advertisements. So so
4: this is not a Burger King advertisement. This is like a meme of like, here's what's advertised, but here's what we
2: actually get. There's a Burger King advertisement next to a photo of an actual Burger.
6: Oh, I see. And it's Burger King saying, we don't do this. We give you the real thing, right?
2: No, no. What they're no, this is someone showing. Oh, gotcha. Okay. This is what Burger King advertises. Oh, I gotcha. Gotcha. This is what someone gets. And we we did it from the most attractive angle and it still sucks. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um. No. I, yeah. I, I love this. I uh,
4: I I made the mistake that one time. What Josh? When we were I forget what news program it was. Well, somewhere like when we were on the one hundred city tour. So like TK, we're um getting ready to do our interview, and right before us, there's a chef who like, you know, makes this these beautiful you know uh, food items. Specifically, it was salmon, and. You know, as a I was a pescatarian at the time, I'm like, oh my God, that salmon looks so good. Yeah. And like I mentioned it to um like one of the news anchors or the chef or something, like after, you know, when we were they were heading off stage, we were heading on, uh or offset, we were heading on set. And uh yeah, as they were heading off, I'm like, That looks really good. And they're like, Do you want some? And I'm like, Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> and I took a bite and it was it was so bad. Oh, man. It was so bad. I assume it was probably good, like once it came out of the oven. It's, but it was just funny because, like, yeah, yeah I, I was um, seeing one thing and experiencing something very different when I took a bite of that salmon. Didn't get sick, luckily, but definitely had some regrets. <laughs>
6: Can I uh, defend this for fun?
3: Yeah, let's yeah. yeah. Yeah.
6: All right. So one could argue that what Burger King is doing. When they put these well-groomed whoppers on the ad, is similar to what we do when we have a guest over to our homes, or what we do when someone visits our office or our workspace. In day-to-day life, if you're part of the team, we're all okay with that. You know, misplaced book over there on the floor, or with that you know um, sweater hanging over a chair. Those are not actual examples from this room. I see Josh (laughs) looking at me like, ah, ain't no misplaced books on my floor. Uh -uh.
2: But Although, Mallory, you got to get rid of this incredible kitchen, thing. Get this (laughs) out of here.
6: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when there's a guest coming over, we all know that first impressions are really valuable. Mm -hmm. How a person judges you once they're already there and they've kind of become acclimated to you and they're familiar with you is very different than how a person judges you when they're just focusing on the optics. And so you clean up and you get everything organized. That's not how it is for your life day to day. But then when they come in, oh, this place looks really nice, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Is that false advertising? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you could say that, but maybe there's an understanding of human nature there that, This is how people act for first impressions. But after you come over to my house the fifth time, you're coming over for me now. You (laughs) trust me. You know that there's more to who I am and our relationship than how things initially look. And I can kind of slack off a little bit. The The reason I say this as a possible case for Burger King is because one thing about the people who buy Whoppers is they don't usually go to the restaurant. And take a bite out of a Whopper and be like, "Hey, wait a minute, man! This burger ain't fluffy like it is on the picture." Mm-hmm. People who eat Whoppers like the way they taste, but what Burger King is doing is they're saying, "We got to get you in.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Once we get you in and you taste the Whopper, you're good. You don't even care about the picture anymore." Maybe the only people that care about the picture are the people that don't even eat Burger King.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: The devil's advocate case. Now I appreciate no, that. This is the compassionate.
4: Per, approach to it uh, no Comp- i like it no. no it's kidding. good but
6: to, uh, to josh's no, point yeah,
4: yeah. It, but it is the compassionate approach because yeah. like yes you're right like we're all trying to put on our best face we're all trying to um yeah put on the best version of ourselves like okay so with josh for example he's a big introvert but seems like an extrovert because he's really good at being extroverted mm-hmm. and uh, social yeah social yeah yeah so, yeah right exactly you're, yeah he's good at being social so there's a thing where like Josh is putting the best version of him of himself out there socially. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, there's a point where like he needs his time to recharge and like yeah. he wouldn't he wouldn't be as social or as pleasantly social if he was just doing it twenty four seven. So I,
6: I do see what you're saying for yeah. sure. And by I, the I, way, we, we could do that to everybody's profile pic. Oh yeah. To everybody's headshot to everybody's ever picture that they show in public because everybody who takes pictures yeah. they go through the phone they delete all the ones where they think they look ugly
3: mm. but
6: like when we make, when we put on makeup when we groom our hair when we put on the right outfit are we misleading people or are we intuiting something important about appearances or first impressions without promising the world that we always look this way
4: are you calling Burger King like the original catfish <laughs> <laughs> Because they are catfishing us with this walker,
2: <laughs> so and I think that's <laughs> maybe they're just putting on a little makeup. This is where I disagree with with TK. This isn't putting on a little makeup. I, I don't this know is, if I really think this yet. I mean, well, yeah. let, let's talk about yeah. your analogy, and I think this is where your analogy breaks down. Yeah, your your analogy is, hey, yeah, I tidy up my house, but I think to make the analogy apt for this scenario. You go rent an Airbnb for a weekend, a mansion, and say, this is my house. And you invite people over. Mm. Look at my house. Look how amazing this is. And the next time they come over, you're like, oh, yeah, just come to this address. And they they actually they come to the the real address. And they're like, wait, this isn't your house. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I just wanted to make a good first impression by lying to you, by deceiving you <laughs> to come into our establishment. And so there's a difference between tidying up your house, putting your best foot forward, being the best version of yourself, mm. and deceiving people to part with their money. And, and mm. I, I would say that this is a deception. And what one might argue is if you like the taste of a Whopper, then it doesn't matter what it looks like. And right? That's what they're counting on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
6: I mean, you, you could argue that it's the capacity to recognize scandal that that kind of makes it dishonest so with the airbnb thing once someone finds out that this is not my home they're going to react as if it's scandalous i'm not so sure if once somebody bites into a whopper if any burger king customers complain that it doesn't look like the the picture so maybe a more apt analogy would be like putting on makeup and by the way there are people not me who Feel like, or who have claimed that's a form of false advertising, right? Mm. You put on a bunch of makeup and you go out to the club or you go out, whatever, wherever you go to the club, you go to church, and you look like you look a certain way. Mm -hmm. But when somebody gets to know you Mm. and they wake up next to you and they see you without that makeup, Mm -hmm. I hope it's not a surprise. Yeah, I take off that push up (laughs) bra.
3: (laughs) totally surprised Mariah the first
6: time (laughs) I mean when I pulled off my blind wig for the first time my wife was like bro that's false advertising but thankfully she fell in love with
2: my personality and she was like right, cool oh my goodness but actually you're you're illustrating a point your analogy here breaks down again TK (laughs) <laughs> TK, we, should, let we, me. Should, we should call this episode Break It Down, break TK. It down, well, me, let down, me let me F you up with some more truth, brother. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so your analogy has to do with makeup, and that's like accentuating yourself. <laughs> Not How for mean?
6: some people, bro. For some people, it is literally creating an alternate version of themselves that the reality cannot live up to whatsoever. There's some strong discrepancies mm. that, maybe. for people's headshots and the reality when they walk into the room.
2: That, that That's certainly true. But what, what I will say is that generally makeup is used to accentuate or, I mean, in our case, all three of us are wearing some sort of powder to uh, avoid these bright lights that are overhead mm-hmm. from making us super, super shiny, especially me because my forehead gets so freaking shiny. <laughs> we love um, your shiny forehead. And <laughs> and so what I w- will say is that's that's one thing. But if I came in here wearing a mask, an actual mask, and pretended as though, like a really nice cosmetic Hollywood style mask, and pretended Mm. as though that was me, and then five episodes from now, I or actually, if I pretended it on the cover of the episode, Mm. and then when you got to the episode, I was not wearing the mask, you'd be like, wait, that's not the thing that I clicked on. That's not the thing that I signed up for. That's not the thing that I want. Yeah. And so I think what we're talking about here is promising something that can't possibly be delivered. It's not possible to make the hamburger look mm-hmm. that way. I do agree mm-hmm. with you that they're trying to get people into the restaurant. I think the way in which they're doing it is deceitful. Mm. It certainly is deceitful. I mean, you're, you are, you are uh, promising
4: a good experience with, you know, with whatever you're putting out there. And yeah, the experience you get Maybe a little different than what was advertised, Mm -hmm. but again, like I think Burger King is counting on like you're going to take a bite of that Whopper and you're not even going to think about that picture because it's so good with their flame broil.
6: (laughs) Yeah. So I have a question now, based on personal experience. So when I was looking for apartments and things like that, this was actually when I moved to Charleston. I saw this one place where, based on the pictures, it looked so beautiful. Mm. They showed you the exterior of the home. They showed you the different rooms. It looked nice, and I went over there, and there was something I noticed that wasn't in any of the pictures, and it was the house next to it.
3: Mm. The house
6: next to it looked like, uh, like a garbage dump, and and the balcony of the the place I was going to look at was facing that house. So if you ever came out on your balcony to just stand there or have a seat, you'd be looking at what looked like a terrible pile of trash. Mm. It was an instant deal breaker for me. I was like, oh, nope. I don't even have to look inside the house because no matter how much I love it, that's not what I want to live next to. I understand though why they took the pictures the way they did because the pictures that they took were true, but they left something out that was a big part of my decision. So now, Suppose I am the one who owns this place mm-hmm. and I am renting it out. And I come to you guys and say, hey, look, here are the pictures from my place. But here's this other picture of the house next to it that looks like trash. If I post that on Zillow or whatever, uh, shoot, I got to stop saying these names, giving away that free money. <laughs> if I post it on Insert General Real Estate uh, app here, then people might look at that and be like, I'm out. So I'm just going to post the most beautiful ones and let them find out about that when they get here, Mm -hmm. because maybe they'll fall in love with this place so much that they'll contextualize what they see by saying, "Mm, I don't like that. If I saw the picture, I wouldn't have chosen this place. But now that I'm here, I think I like the neighborhood and other things so much that I'm going to go with this place. I think most people would choose to do it
2: that way. But then would you consider that deception? No, but he, here's here's the difference. And your analogy breaks down again. Hey man. If, if you say breaks down, if, if
6: you threaten me with that one more time, man.
2: <laughs> he means it with love. Can't you hear the love in his voice? Yeah, I'm about to break you off <laughs> <Another piece. laughs> I, don't, I don't have podcast Sean here to shoot him. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh so if I have to break you down one more time. <laughs> podcast Sean. Yeah. So we'll h- here's what I'll say. Okay. PK, is what you're talking about is if I were to take pictures of a different house and then per- and then you arrive to that house, because this is not a whopper. Wa- My point is, wherever the ad is right now, <laughs> that's not a whopper in there. It is a, a mansion that people are taking pictures of and then saying, hey, come take a look at this house. Right. It is not a whopper. And so... It is not the best version of a Whopper. It is a non-existent version. And that's what I'm trying to say. This version does not exist in the real world. And that is the problem we're talking about. So
6: this introduces a very valuable distinction for future discussion on what constitutes a bad advertisement. Mm. Is it bad in the sense that we disagree with the values that it embodies? Or bad in the sense that we believe deceptive tactics are being employed? Mm -hmm. Or is it bad in the sense of it being ineffective? And both of those categories are meaningful Mm -hmm. and subject to analysis because there are some advertisements that we could criticize all day long as being bad, but they do achieve what the advertiser sets out to do. Mm -hmm. I think if Burger King was here, they would be like, we don't care about that. And I think if their customers were here, I think I think you see a dude sitting next to him eating a whopper and be like, I don't care nothing about that. Mm-hmm. I think they would say, This advertisement achieves what we set out to achieve. Mm-hmm. Our customers never accuse us of any scandal. It never creates any problems for us. It doesn't hurt our relationship-based. And the set of assumptions we employ are understood. Our customers come in and they don't even expect a burger to look like the picture. They don't complain when there isn't a burger like the picture. They know the game that we're playing and we're playing it together. Mm. But we can also criticize based on values and other things like that. So I think it's an important distinction. Yeah, well,
4: I think that to answer your question, like what constitutes as a bad ad, um, I would say yes to everything that you said. So, I mean, I think, you know, moving forward, we'll see... You know why next why the next podcast advertisement is is pernicious. But to me, like bad is when it's it's pernicious, misleading. Mm. Um, yeah, promises something they can't deliver. but yeah, I mean, there are a multitude of reasons why the morals, like the whole um life's too short, to have an affair. With uh, I forget the I forget the the website, but they were promoting like, "Hey, life's too short; have an affair." So like Ashley Madison, yeah. So that's a really that's a really um, honest advertisement in the sense that like they're promising you an opportunity to to cheat on your significant other, but morally, like I think it's a horrible advertisement, but.
6: But it is what it is. But they're also, you you could say that that's deceptive as well, because they're Mm -hmm. also offering a promise of adventure and happiness that will come from Mm -hmm. having this affair. Mm -hmm. Whereas statistically and historically, the aftermath of these affairs more often than not lead to all sorts of of psychological Mm -hmm. damage and regret and things along those lines.
2: Save that for a future segment. I I don't want to... And by the way, if you're watching the, if you're listening to the audio version of this, you don't need the video version. If you want to see the advertisement, Jordan's going to put them on the screen, but we'll continue to describe them. So you continue to listen to the audio version if you want, but the video version will allow you to see the sucky ad. And by the way, we're not saying bad advertisement. I want to be clear about that. I think advertisements suck. I don't think they're morally Mm, wrong. I just hate experiencing advertisements. They suck. You can send us your sucky ads. We'd love to see what sucky ads you are experiencing. Podcast at theminimalists.com. Just email those and Malabama will add them to a future episode. Our next new Simple Living segment is obsolete objects. (laughs) So I was talking to one of our Lovely, private podcast subscribers. Her name was Jimma. uh, Via, we were going back and forth on DM. And she said, I love how you expose me to all of these things that are sort of obsolete, that I didn't realize are obsolete in my life. There are objects that I would be fine without, or maybe my life would even be better without Mm -hmm. some of those objects. And to me, that's one of the ideas of minimalism is, I mean, it's in our theme song, right? I Mm -hmm. bet you'll be fine without it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Or maybe your life will be improved without it, not Mm -hmm. improved by getting more, but improved by getting more peace, by getting the excess Mm -hmm. out of the way, getting the chaos out of the way. So you can email your obsolete objects. I've got one for me personally this week. Now, Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is this is an obsolete object for me, right? Whether or not is obsolete for you, you get to decide on your own. So some other things we've talked about in the past, uh, Uh, Wi-Fi at home. I don't have Wi-Fi at home. That is now obsolete for me. I'm Mm -hmm. not prescribing that to anyone else. I've noticed that without it, my life is improved. I read more. I write more. I exercise more. I spend more time with my family. I get more alone time, etc. My life is better without it. Things like cashews I've talked about in the past. Cashews cause digestive issues for Mm. me. So removing those from my life because of the toxins that are Cashews are so toxic, you've never seen a cashew shell in your life. Think about that for a second. You've never, ever seen a cashew shell. Have you ever seen someone remove the shells from cashews (laughs) in a factory when they do it? They have to wear gloves and protective eyewear because, and by the way, the generally women that have do this, and generally third world countries are removing the shells from cashews. They're experiencing all kinds of, like if they don't use the proper equipment, the toxicity leaches into their skin. Wait, just from the cashew shell? Yes. Yeah, yeah
4: there's a,
6: yeah. The cashew Bro, shell you're, you're like, rat-pilling me on cashews right yeah. now.
4: <laughs> well, it's, so the shell is toxic, and then there is a certain percentage of the population that will have like a severe, if not like deadly reaction to the toxins in the shell.
2: Yeah, and you know? and I think most people will as well. I don't have a allergic reaction to cashews themselves, mm-hmm. but I do have a sensitivity to them.
5: Cashews... Cashews are in the same family as poison ivy.
6: Oh,
2: oh wow! Yeah.
6: But there's there's no part of poison ivy that we
2: can consume, right? I mean, you can, but no I wouldn't sh- recommend it. I don't know if anyone's tried. Let's let's try it. We'll do that on the <laughs> uh, next one on the next uh, episode. Yeah, right, right. I want to go off for coffee after, and I got some more cashew <laughs> questions. <laughs> um, so there are other things to to begin to question, right? Mm. Anything from de- like deodorant. I yeah, wore deodorant obsolete. for many years. Yeah, It's, it's obsolete. obsolete for me now. I haven't worn deodorant in probably a decade. Well, hold on. What, what, what's wrong with deodorant? Nothing's. Wait, that's the thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, especially natural deodorants. Although a lot of de- deodorants have a lot of toxic chemicals in mm-hmm. them, especially antiperspirants. They keep us from perspiring, which is removing us from nature. One thing that minimalism allows us to do is reconnect with nature, with Our ancestral history, right? And so what I've found with deodorant is it masks something that why am I trying to mask it? Why do I want to cover up the way I smell? Well, it could be Mm. because I have a poor diet Mm. and that poor diet leads me to smell poorly, well, if I correct the source of that smelling poorly, which I did, I no longer smell poorly. Or it might also mean that when you first go off deodorant. I know Ryan, when you gave it up, you're like, "Oh, I smell bad for like two or three weeks." It took a while. Yeah, it took a little adjustment
4: for sure. I, I just had to do like little quick pit washes throughout the day. <laughs> Man, but I just want to say we're not moralizing anything here. Right, it's right. Not good or bad? It's just it's just obsolete. And like deodorant specifically, um, there a lot of them have like aluminum and like different chemicals in there that that that's the anti, antiperspirant but like those things it leaches into your body and again like some people uh they can handle those toxins no problem other people like it
2: it really messes with them yeah you know? i'm not going to let you guys take away my deodorant no dude that's, I'm that's, that's the thing i just, <laughs> <kidding. I'm laughs> just kidding. we don't we don't prescribe this to anyone no. it, it, but it's understanding that some of the things we thought yeah. were in fact essential mhm may be junk for us over a long enough timeline.
3: Mm -hmm. There'll
2: be a time when you stop using deodorant. Now, it might be 50 years from now and you're in a grave, (laughs) but at some point you're going to stop using deodorant. (laughs) And what I've realized is that we don't ever stop to question these things that we think are value adding, but they may, our life may be fine without it. Or my life has improved without deodorant Yeah, for a few reasons. One is, you know, our pheromones now, the sort of undetectable at the surface smell s- certainly attracted me to Bex and vice versa. And she's always like, oh, I've, I feel real stinky today. I'm like, you smell amazing. We often connect with people because of our pheromones. Mm. That invisible you know, it, uh, smell that we experience between two people, sometimes you... You don't notice it intellectually, mm. but it's there. It lingers. Now, you don't want to be put off by someone's odor, and that tends to be why we use deodorant. So the question is, why do I need deodorant? And if the answer is I need it because of X, Y, Z, fine. We're not saying get rid of it, but I'm understanding that many of the things we think are necessary mm-hmm. are obsolete. Here's my thing for this, for this week. A dishwasher. Now, it's funny because we've been living in our new house for a while, and so I bought my dream house recently. And by dream house, I mean I live in the garage, <laughs> and it's about I don't know three hundred and fifty square feet, four hundred square feet. And I think uh, you're being generous there, but yeah, 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 right. <laughs> I don't, it's it's pretty small. Yeah, it might be three hundred square feet. Yeah, I haven't measured it yet. Uh, that's what I always say. Um, uh, anyway, mm. I uh, mm. <laughs> it took me a minute. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I I live in the space that I have just what I need in there. But several weeks into it, I realized I had a dishwasher. Mm. And I realized, like, oh, this, I will never use a dishwasher because I went many years without it. Yeah, And I prefer not running all the water, but also I just prefer the process of cleaning my dishes right away. Mm. And so even in the main house where Bex and Ella live, and I live half the time, I, we have a dishwasher in there too. So we have two dishwashers of which I don't want either. (laughs) They came with the house. And if I were to redo the kitchens, I would do them without dishwashers. Although I know there are times where it makes sense for people. They want a dishwasher. So just because it's obsolete for me, doesn't mean it's obsolete for someone else. In fact, I was having this conversation with Professor Sean. He was saying someone who was Dave Asprey or something. Yeah. Anyway, he said he recommends have two dishwashers like right next to each other. That way you ha- always have one where like you can put your dirty dishes and then you just have your clean dishes and the other one that you can, so you never have to put your dishes away. Personally, I prefer the ritual of putting the dishes away. Mm-hmm. Placing them somewhere as soon as I have cleaned them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that they're out of the way for me. So for me, an obsolete object is a dishwasher. You can S- sweet. <laughs> yeah you can send your obsolete objects to podcast at theminimalists.com. We'd love to review some of yours as well. Maybe fabric softener. That's another one. I never use dryer sheets anymore, any mm. of that stuff. Yeah, that seems obsolete in my life. Yeah, and the only way to know that for sure is to temporarily deprive yourself of it. Mm. Am I fine without it? Or, oh my gosh, did things improve without it? and if if the answer is no, oh man, I really miss this thing great. You can bring it right back into your life. Not a problem at all.
6: It's, it's, it's sort of like thinking about the concept of fasting beyond food. Like, almost everything in our lives could benefit from a little bit of fasting in order to see where we really stand with that thing. I, I like that. And one of the things I get out of the deodorant thing, um, um, I'm still going to use my deodorant for now. <laughs> but one thing I take from it is sometimes... Actually, could you use a little more? Oh, <man>. I set, myself, set your, yeah, I set myself up. I walked yourself, right man. into it, man. I take responsibility for that. He couldn't have made me angry like that if I didn't give him the power too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I literally handed the brother my fist so he could punch me in the face with it. <laughs> oh <my God>. Um <laughs> Stop hitting yourself, TK. But uh, sometimes it's true that we need something. And it's also true that the fact that we need it, is an indicator of another form of deficiency. I think about that movie Flight where Denzel Washington plays the pilot and and there's a moment where he really needs to deliver. And because he's a cocaine addict, he knows that he can't really function at a proper level without taking the cocaine first. And so he does what he has to do to get through the moment. And you could argue he needed that cocaine to be Mm, able to deliver the result that that he delivered. But the fact that he needed it Mm. is an indicator that he was already so far down another path of being deficient in another area of life. So sometimes our needs are evidence that we're supposed to keep doing what we're doing, but sometimes our needs are an invitation to think about why we can't live without that in the first place.
2: Yeah, it's a great movie. We'll check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. If you're watching the video version, if you have access to the video version, you also have access to the live stream. I know we've got some questions from our live stream. We'll get to those in a moment. We've got another new segment. I'm really enjoying these segments, gentlemen. <laughs> i want a movie segment now, by yeah, the way. Right. Uh, well, that's our added value. So we can talk about that. Still, um, we can. But before that, every Friday, we're posting a photo to... Patreon if you have access to the video version of the podcast or or above and uh, you'll actually see this photo on this episode here so mm-hmm. Jordan's going to put this right here this is our first one this is photo friday home tour so we're doing a weekly home tour every friday through photo and i called this one punk rocker <laughs> and What I want to accomplish with these little home tours that we are doing each week is have a glimpse inside a minimalist home to realize it may not always look like a magazine. Sometimes it might, and that's okay. But there are other times to be genuine, to not try to simply show the 2D version of a 3D life. Let's look inside our life, especially now that, well, I just moved and TK is moving right now. There's chaos that is involved with moving. And with the boxes and everything else, I was talking earlier when I posted a a picture of all the boxes when I was moving, there weren't many. Uh, I always go to usedcardboardboxes.com, not a sponsor because advertisements suck. But I get my cardboard boxes from usedcardboardboxes.com because I don't have to spend an exorbitant amount of money to go to a, a local store and buy new boxes. Plus, I'm giving these old boxes, gently used boxes, new life. And as I'm boxing up all these boxes, I post a photo on Instagram, of some different boxes, and people like Danny Unknown reached out and said, You call yourself a minimalist. <laughs> and my response to that is, I swear it's not mine. <laughs> I'm holding it all for a friend. <laughs> but part of that is actually true <laughs> because it's not just my stuff, it's my family's stuff too. And some things that add value to my wife's life or my daughter's life may not add value. To my life. So in this photo, which you can see right here somewhere on the video screen, if you're watching the video version, this is Ella in a rocker and it's in our living room. You'll notice these two little strips of tape on the blue tape on the floor. And that's because we're trying to figure out what kind of rug, what size rug to get. And and so as we've moved into this new home, we have just a few pieces of furniture. I sold most of my furniture when we moved and we're very slowly populating the space. So what you see here, there will actually be more things in our space than what's in this photograph here. So TK, I'll hand this over to you so you can take a look at it. What you see here is Ella in our rocking chair and um, she's just hanging out in her robe, being a little punk and a rocker (laughs) and enjoying herself. And I said, hey, Ella, do you want me to take a picture of you? And she said, yes, because... (laughs) He wanted me to post it on uh, (laughs) Patreon for our patrons. And um, what you'll see here in this photo is a relatively simple living room. And here's where I lie to myself. I will be happy when this room is complete. I will be calmer when I have just the right things in this room. In a way, it's reverse consumerism. If it's, oh, you know, I bought all the things. All the things were supposed to make me happy, but I had 300,000 things. I was an organized hoarder. I had all this stuff and it didn't make me happy. And so, you know what? If I get rid of all the things, maybe that'll make me happy. Of course, that doesn't work either. That's reverse consumerism. It's thinking external externalities are going to make me happy. But then it's like, oh, I get rid of all the things. That didn't make me happy. So what if I get all the right things? If I get the right couch, I get the right coffee table. I'm not against those things. Those things add value to my life. And I think they can add beauty to our lives as well. I think aesthetics are important. There's a reason that flowers are so colorful. They attract the bees, right? And so aesthetics are an important part of life. But the problem is when we put aesthetics first, when we put form over function, then we lose out. And so what you see here is a room that is sort of under construction. And what I've been doing right now is trying to make peace with that unfinishedness because ultimately it's always unfinished.
6: I was enjoying the paradox of you saying, ultimately, it's all unfinished and just <laughs> resisting the temptation to add to it. I was like, ooh, that's.
2: <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. the better way to phrase that is it is mm-hmm. always unfinished, right? Mm-hmm. Because as soon as we finish something, something new opens up. Yeah, you know, we finish a chapter, there's a new chapter. We finish a book, there's a, uh, a new book. We finish writing an essay, there's something else. Alan Watts said, if the purpose of a
6: song was to get to the end, the best musicians would be the ones who play the fastest. But that's not the purpose. It's to be present, to enjoy the process, to enjoy the groove, to learn how to get into your rhythm and feel the music. It's not about getting done, mm-hmm. getting to the end of the song.
4: Yeah. And it's not about just listening to that one song over and over again. Yeah. You got to have variety. So to Josh's point, this living room, once it has the perfect amount of stuff, once it's like, you know, truly photo ready, Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be another thing in your life that you need to complete or incomplete.
2: Yeah. In fact, I find that one of the things that I enjoy the most is often blowing the thing up and re-completing it. Mm. And it's, what TK just said. It's the process of the re-completing. And so you get there and you c- you can be content in it for a moment, but you can also be content as you are achieving, pursuing, creating, completing.
6: Yeah, I would say the goal is not the point. The flowing of creative energy is the point. The goal is just an excuse to get the creative energy flowing.
2: It's what propels you yeah. there. Yeah. Well, we got some uh, Patreon live stream questions. What do we got Malabama?
5: We have a question from Fidget with Ella. What are your thoughts on letting go of your aspirational self?
2: Aspirational self. Let's talk about aspirations here. Mm. So if you're aspiring, it means you want to become a different version of yourself. Mm -hmm. I think we have a great problem in our culture with becoming. Thinking is the, sort of the mimetic becoming. Mm. I need to become what other people want me to become. Yeah. And no wonder we're so miserable. If I just become the right executive, if I just become the right husband, if I just become the right kind of parent or whatever, mm-hmm. without, without, without ever asking ourselves, why do I want to do that? Mm. Is that fulfilling to me? Is that satisfying? Is that going to get in the way? Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing wrong with aspiring. The problem with aspiration I was an aspiring writer for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I aspired every day, but I barely ever wrote. (laughs) I was a writer when I started writing and then I could just stop aspiring Mm. and I could start writing. And now maybe I aspire to improve my writing, but that's going to happen naturally if I simply sit down and write. If I'm compelled to write, I don't have to aspire. I simply do the thing I'm compelled to do. Mm. Was that aspiring motivational at all?
4: No, it was demotivational. Because I think that's where we get stuck on this aspirational self is for some reason, and I am guilty of this, I feel like if I'm longing for someone I wish that I was, that somehow that's going to motivate me to like do more. And uh, it hasn't worked for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds like it hasn't worked for Josh, but hmm. but maybe that's what you know. Maybe that's what uh, Fidget with Ella is worried about. Like, oh, I'm going to lose all my motivation, and it's like, well, is it really motivating you right now as it is? Yeah, like it's okay to be happy with who you are, and you know, have have some goal or direction that you want to start heading in. But the aspiration, I would posit, doesn't do anything for that journey.
6: Not yeah,
4: yeah. Or it doesn't do as much as we think. Maybe that's a better way of
3: saying it.
6: Yeah, you know, I I think to be alive is to be in process. A human being is not a static condition. A human being is a dynamic, ever-evolving process, which is why you're never finished. You're never complete. You're never done until you're dead, right? And so... We're always evolving. We're always moving towards something new, towards something different. We're always changing. Even right now, even if you say, no, no, I'm the same. I'm going to keep all my same routines and commitments. I'm not going to change anything. Your body is changing in so many different ways because to be alive is to be in process. And so the problem is not aspiration, but it's the state of consciousness from which we practice aspiration. If you are seeking to achieve something from a consciousness of lack, who I am is not enough, I must do this in order to become something that I'm not, I must acquire this in order to be valuable, in order to be successful, then that's just this never-ending cycle of not having enough, not feeling like you're worthy, and that never leads to happiness. Mm. On the other hand, your aspirations can be an expression of your consciousness of abundance. Who I am is filled with all sorts of creative ideas and impulses. I do not want to be a writer. I am a writer and I have stories inside of me and I'm inspired to tell them. I'm inspired to document them. And so I write my story, not because I'm some worthless loser who isn't happy now. And if I only complete the story, I'll then be happy. I write the story because I am fully alive. I am filled with joy. And this story is singing through me and I can't help but do what my nature demands of me, right? And so that's the beautiful kind of aspiration. Neville Goddard said, do not think of the end, think from the end. Whatever it is you aspire to be, identify with the consciousness of being that very thing right here, right now, and then create from, not for, that desired result. So Mm. choose to be a writer. And, And the people who tend to get things done it's because they've sort of embodied in the present moment the consciousness of already being that person. They may be out of shape, but they say, I'm fit. And they see themselves as that right now. And then they begin to give expression to that rather than
2: saying, I'm not this, and then trying to become something that you're not. The thing I talk to my yeah. How to Write Better Students about is trading the noun for the verb. Because mm. we often aspire to be a writer. Yeah. But it doesn't matter if you're not writing. And so the verb is, I'm much more passionate about writing than I am about being a writer. Right. And so if you can trade that noun, that object, that concept of, if I do all these things, I'll be a writer, for simply writing, then paradoxically, you actually become a writer without having to take 17 different steps to get there.
6: Mm. One more thing on that. Treating treating creativity as if it's an ontological state is so self-defeating because if you say, well, I want to be creative or I want to become a creator. First of all, you're going to philosophize your whole life trying to decide if you actually are a creator. But not only that, you become the victim of all these stereotypes. Well, creative people are like this. Maybe I'm just not a creative person. But ultimately, a creator is simply one who creates. And if you start creating, it doesn't matter if you don't have the pink hair. It doesn't matter if you don't have the cool middle name, Le Prince, I have one. It doesn't matter if you don't live in a cool city, right? As long as you are creating then you get to have the ontological state by default. By choosing to engage the verb, you get to be the thing. A writer is just someone who writes, right? Mm -hmm. A creator is just someone who creates. But if you say, well, am I a writer? And so this world is filled with people who are trying to determine if they have the status that makes them worthy to call themselves a thing and they never get around to doing the thing. I say, leave those debates up to the world. Don't wait for anybody to crown you with writer. I don't know anybody in my life who considers me worthy to be the things I do. I just do them.
4: Mm. Man, I, TK, I needed that, man. Because I I do not spend enough time appreciating the life I have. I, I take time to do it. I don't take it for granted. I love it. I'm very happy. I've never been so happy. But like, there's this thing in the back of my head like, oh, you got to do X, Y, and Z. You You can't, you know, you're not really going to be your self-actualized self until you reach this aspirational self. And yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Thanks, y'all. I really needed that. Let's do one more. I love you, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate you, man. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Let's
2: check in with the live stream one more time. One more question.
5: We have a question from Marcus. Is there a way to get my small business's name out there without bombarding people with information?
2: well i would say that bombarding people with information is one of the worst ways to get your small business out there because if you batter someone you know it's it's a weird thing like we did this in yeah you know, elementary school if you like pull a girl's hair to get their attention mm-hmm. not knowing that that like it gets their attention in all the wrong ways yeah and mm. <laughs> see, Alabama's had her hair pulled along. <laughs> Danny's pulling right now. Stop it, Danny. <laughs>
3: um,
2: and uh, h- here's, here's what I'll say is there's a lot of noise out there. Mm. And to add more noise is not the point. But if you can create something that is worth seeking out, yeah. I learned this from Seth Godin. You can sort of whisper into the noise and people will look for that whisper. And... Uh, The problem is that there's so much noise now. It's like trying to go to a Metallica concert and listen to a small radio playing Mozart in the background. You're not going to hear it. And so going to the Metallica concert to try to play your Mozart radio isn't going to work. We have to often remove ourselves from the noise. And occasionally, if I whisper and someone seeks it out, you know, Ryan and I will... Never have the same size audience as Jake Paul or Logan Paul. Not with that attitude. (laughs) Well, (laughs) exactly. Because my attitude is that I'm not willing to create chaos. I'm not willing to feed into a drama. I doesn't mean I think they're morally wrong for doing that. It means that I am not willing to take that road. It's not a Mm. path that I desire to take. And so, what is the path that you want to take? And if you understand that, mm. if you're creating something that adds val that adds value, yes, you have to find ways to get it in front of people as well. Right. But I'll tell you, yeah, we have social media, we have all these things. You know, the number one way that people hear about our podcast from a friend, a family member, mm-hmm. a coworker, you've got to listen to this episode from the minimalists. Mm-hmm. And so The share button, the forward email button is the most valuable social media that we have. Because here's the thing. If you see something pop up on Facebook from one of your 5,000 Facebook friends that posted something about, here's a podcast about these guys telling me to get rid of stuff, Mm -hmm. that might be helpful if the person really trusts you. But you know what's most helpful? If I text TK and I'm like, TK, I really found value in this episode. I think you will, too. You're much more apt to listen to it because I personally recommended it to you.: That's right on.
6: Sales isn't the process of like twisting people's arm to get them to do things they don't want to do. It's not the process of continuing to talk to people when they've already indicated to you, that they don't want to be talked to. It's not the process of interu- interrupting people mid-life and saying, "Hey, hey hey, let me sell you my product, and they've got other things they would rather be doing." it's the process of identifying the people who have a need for which you provide the solution who have a problem that you are capable of solving with your service or product and it's about letting them know that you are out there in a manner that is respectful in a manner that is honest and in a manner in a manner that is creative and attention grabbing and it's possible by the way to be all those things at the same time mm-hmm. you know you can be attention grabbing creative and honest mm-hmm. And doing that in a way that respects people's right to say, hey, no, it's not for me. And so I would say, don't think about marketing your service as bombarding people with information. Think about it as putting out your offerings to the world and letting people gravitate to it based on their own needs. Mm -hmm. And also, I would say more important than just like putting out stuff, hoping that, someone is going to see a paid ad or someone is going to see a tweet. I would say, if you really think that your solution, you know, resolves someone's problem, then go find the people who have the problem. Mm -hmm. Anytime you start a business, you got to ask yourself, well, who am I here to help? And what is the problem I believe they're suffering from? I got that from Ken Coleman. Who am I trying to help? What's the problem I believe they're suffering from? And how does my solution aid them? Once you answer those questions, go find them. Are they hanging out at the park, at the basketball court, at the church? Go find them and start relationships with them so that you can have the opportunity naturally, organically, empathetically to tell them about your solution at a strategic and appropriate time.
2: Yes. We, uh, we've learned a lot from Ken Coleman. In fact, we just did an event with him in D.C. that came out. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, we just released it over on on Patreon. You can find all of our previous events, uh, theminimalists.com slash previous. I would like to move on to our right here, right now segment. This is where we talk about something that's going on in the life of the minimalists. And I just want to encourage you to join our wait list for the Sunday symposium. This was amazing. We uh, we announced we're doing this live event. We're doing a regular sort of event. It's a simple gathering for simple people. We're intentionally keeping it really small. It's only 200 people. We told our patrons about it first to Mm -hmm. to say thanks and want you to know about it before the public. But as soon as we announced it on the podcast, it sold out in about an hour. Yeah, it was wild. Now, I say sell out because they're You could pay for it or you could get a free ticket if you couldn't afford a ticket. So Mm -hmm. we made this event available to everyone. And we're going to start doing this once a month for a while, at least till the end of the year is our plan right now. And we're going to see how it grows. We don't want it to grow too fast. There's already hundreds of people on the wait list at this point. And so there's an opportunity for us here to Grow this thing slowly, intentionally. It's not about finding the biggest theater or having the biggest crowd. Ryan and I have done that. We've spoken in front of 15,000 people before. We've had our own crowds of 2,000, 2,500 people. It's not about the width. What we're talking about here is creating some depth. And so with the Sunday Symposium, it's going to be me and TK and Ryan. The first one, we have a special guest. Her name's Amanda Montel, and she wrote this uh, book about cults how appropriate that she's our first
4: guest. Yes. Because I told some friends I was like, "Oh yeah, we're doing the Sunday symposium thing." They're like, "What's that?" I'm like, "It's kind of like church without church." I'm like, "It's a cult." That's basically what it is. We're like, "We're starting.
2: We're like we're doubling down on on, on the cult." <laughs> Ryan is doubling down on that. I'm not using that terminology. Know, I'm not going to scare anyone off with no, that. No, I'm joking. Yeah, um, I'm joking. It is definitely not a cult no, to be it's clear. Not. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but the more we say that, the more it sounds like a
6: cult <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to deny and to affirm are more similar than not.
4: Yeah. Well, and it's just appropriate to have Amanda Montel there mm-hmm. just to kind of speak of like, I, I, yeah, of kind of like what we're trying to do. No, we're not, we're obviously not trying to start a cult. mm mm-hmm. Um, but after reading her book, like a lot of things are cultish and I just can't wait to have her there, especially for the Sunday symposium to talk about things that are cultish.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so she did a po- uh, podcast episode on her podcast, which is called cultish. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed with her at the end. She came up with the, uh, uh they, they, they determine like, uh, is soul cycle a cult or mm-hmm. is it cultish or is it not a cult? Right. Mm-hmm. At the end of it, I think they determined that minimalism was not a cult, mm-hmm. but we're, we're going to have her there to keep us honest make sure we're not starting a cult but, but if you, by the way to me the essence
6: of a cult is revealed in how you respond when people say it's not for me
3: mm,
4: right uh, yeah what's yeah what's mm. the cost of uh, of uh, like leaving what's the cost of entering what do you have to give up to be in it and yeah what's the what's the response yeah
6: yeah right. i always try to make it clear you're free to leave free to disbelieve yes And still
2: be friends. (laughs) We're we're welcoming all beliefs and non-beliefs here as well. I want to be clear. Ryan, TK, and I all have different political beliefs, religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs. We have different personalities. We have different worldviews. And we accept those other people who want to show up and see what this is about. So we're going to have a discussion. Mm -hmm. You can join us for that. We're going to answer audience questions. We're going to have special guests. Ryan even has a special musical guest that he's set up for us as well. And it's only 200 people. So it's closed right now. But if you get on the wait list, two things will happen. Number one is if a ticket opens up, we will email you and give you access to that, whether it's free or paid, you know, whatever. And then the other thing is if you're on the wait list, sundaysymposium.com, then you'll be the first to hear about the details for the next one of these. Because it's also going to be 200 seats and that is going to be it for a while. We're going to keep this intentionally small, find who really wants to be there Mm -hmm. and who wants to share these experiences with us. We're also going to learn along the way. Let's stumble our way into something meaningful because isn't that that. the only way that we can find something meaningful anyway? You, You can't find something meaningful just by doing the outline and thinking everything is going to work exactly how you planned it. We're going to go into this and stumble our way into a meaningful event that will turn into, ideally, a meaningful event that occurs regularly, no matter what your belief system is. If you can come see us on a Sunday at noon in Los Angeles, or if you're anywhere in Southern California, or even if you want to come out, you're welcome at the Sunday symposium. Mm. Is there anything else to add about that? What else uh, are you expecting from it? Well,
6: I mean, in accordance with what you just said, if you determine in too much detail what it's going to be ahead of time, it might be an achievement, but it's certainly not a discovery. Let's discover
2: something. That's beautiful. For added value segment this week, I have a few added values. You had Anything that's added value to your life recently? Moving. Mm -hmm. Moving
6: has added a lot of
2: value to my life
6: because what it has forced me to do is to think about something you mentioned recently in a tweet The different kinds of costs there are. Mm. And it's easier to know that in theory, but you become more aware of the value that something has in your life when you have to pay to move it across the country. Ooh. I really like this object for free. I really like this object if I don't have to make any sacrifices for it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of like a friendship, right? I can say, oh, I love you so much. But if I'm not willing to do anything for you, if I'm not willing to suffer any degree of inconvenience for you, well, that tells you what the substance of that love is. And man, is it easy to love a thing when it's right there and it doesn't impose upon your life. But when you got to say, hmm, keeping that in my life isn't, extra amount of cubic feet, an extra amount of dollars, an extra amount of weight on my book bag, an extra amount of boxes that have to be put into a truck. Do I really love it? Mm.
3: Mm. And
6: there are a lot of things in my life that I'm very thankful for. They've brought me great joy, but I didn't leave them behind religiously. I left them behind because the consideration of the cost made me say, hmm, Baby, you know you look good, but I got to <laughs> let you go. <laughs> That's
2: great. Yes. That's great. Alabama, Ryan, anyone else in the room? Mm. Anything else been adding value to your life lately? I just, I just bought a card game called Love Letter.
5: Oh, It's 21 that?
2: cards. It's
4: the most minimalist game I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and it is really, really fun. Have you heard of Tic Tac Toe?
3: <laughs> <laughs> talk about
4: minimalist games. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mariah and I, uh, we love board games, card games, whatever. Like we're we are um mm. yeah, and it's great too, because like we get competitive, but like, you know, when Mariah beats me, like I still not physically beats me, but beats me at the games. <laughs> I'll still talk to her afterwards and like there's no like it's a very friendly competition. But uh yeah, we got rid of a bunch of board games. Um recently as well. So that's been adding a lot of value, freeing up space. Freeing up space for the ones that will add value for you. Yeah, and we got rid of a stack of board games like this. For those listening, I'm holding my hands apart like, I don't know, foot and a half. About six inches? Yeah, about six inches. So we got rid of... A... <laughs> we got about... <laughs> it's six and a half inches, oh Josh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got, rid of, we got rid of a stack of games and we replaced it with like this little... Just this little card
2: game. Anyway. Nice. Well, I... Um, oh, I was gonna go somewhere and then phew, out into the ether <laughs> That's that right. thought went right there with Mallory's. <laughs> My laugh. witch
5: cackle pulled you out of it. Mm-hmm. I'm nah, sorry. It was
2: that was perfect. <laughs> that <laughs> was so perfect. Um, board games, game. Oh, I, I you were just talking about when Mariah beat you in the game. You still yes. talked to her after. Right. I was at a coffee shop yesterday working, mm-hmm. and I was at a community table. Mother daughter playing a game of sorts. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't pay attention. I didn't know what kind of game it was, but it was clearly one where they were competing against <laughs> each other. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and at one point, the mom was being the child in mm. this relationship. She looked over at the daughter mm. and said, uh, I don't like that look you get when you uh, when when you win this turn or whatever it was, right? Oh, i don't, wow. I, don't, I don't like that look on your face. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, well, I just... I just rolled the dice, and that's where I ended up. <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. And, and then at one point, within five minutes later, the mom gets up, slams her stuff down, walks out of the coffee shop because wow. her daughter beat her in the game. Oh, my goodness. All I did was roll the dice.
4: I love the way Mariah's face looks when she's beat me at a game <laughs> because I love her, and I love her being happy, and it makes her really happy, especially when it's, when it's a game that I picked. Like I went out and bought it, mm-hmm. and then she just learns how to do it better than me.
2: <laughs> we'll put a link to that
4: game. What's it called again? Love Letter.
2: We'll put Love Letter in the show notes podcast, Sean. Anyone else got uh, got something that's adding value right now? You don't have to force it, but I think I see Danny. If you got something.
0: Well, I'm planning a wedding. Well, Amy and I are planning.
2: Yes! Yeah! <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and a
2: minimalist wedding.
0: Well, I related to TK. You we were talking about you know, you, like you don't this, look related to You TK. like this for... <laughs> really? oh. <Ayo. laughs> I, I thought
6: we did. But you good. were
0: saying, you know, I like this for free because I relate because we moved, of course, from Texas. We moved here um, last year and we went through that. But now, I'm like, you know, I'd love for them to be there like if I didn't have to pay for them to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Like this last year, it's been easy to think like, man, I was in college and I was planning this wedding. Oh man, I'd invite... 'd be 300 people on the invite list mm-hmm. and now I'm like well we're gonna get married in Southern California do I want to pay to invite you know eh, probably not like mm. our friendship is great um it's probably more like acquaintance now because yeah. I don't call them I don't talk to them and, and this is just them there's people that fill this list where I'm like yeah it'd be cool if I ran into them at the coffee shop and be like hey what's up how are you that's great but I'm not Gonna go out of my way to invite a lot of people just because there's a separation distance wise now, but that distance has created separation just relationally, and now I mean, and I attribute this to people I've met here, specifically everyone here, minimalists um I'm not clinging to like that oh well what if what if they get engaged and will I get invited if i don't invite I just don't, mm, yeah. I don't concern
2: myself with that that quid pro quo becomes a different kind of prison. I'm doing this so you will do this. That's not love. That becomes a transaction. And now yeah. you're inviting people to your wedding transactionally, mm. which is what we often do. And what you are learning here is a beautiful thing. Is It's not that they aren't your friends, but they we do have different types of relationships. The problem is, at least it was for me and Ryan, and we wrote about this in our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, the three different types of relationships. You have the primary relationships. Those are like the the five people closest to you. 10 if you're Catholic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> 20 if
2: you're Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it's a family, close, like best friend. Yeah, you know, Usually about five people. The, the five people you associate with or would associate with the most. Then we have the secondary relationships. Those are the people. The way I look at it is sort of like a film. You have like the main characters in a film. And then you have the supporting cast in the film. Mm-hmm. That's your secondary relationships. And you have the tertiary friends, the tertiary relationships in your life. These are the extras in the film. And all of these are required in a meaningful life. The problem is when we start to focus all of our time, attention, energy, effort on the extras in our life, we don't make room for the main cast. And what you're really talking about here, Danny, is who's the main cast? And maybe who are even who's in that secondary tier? And it doesn't mean that the people are bad because they're on the periphery. It just means that you've prioritized certain people in your life out of necessity. You have to, because otherwise, if everyone's the priority in your life, no one is the priority in your life. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. Hey, man, uh, great opportunity for like economics teaching lesson.
6: We've all heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that every time you eat a meal, you have to pay cash for it. Yes, there is such a thing as someone else paying for your meal, But what it means is that scarcity is a fundamental, non-negotiable aspect of life. As human beings, we are finite. No one has an unlimited amount of money and time and energy and knowledge and ability. You have a limited, quantifiable amount of money. You have a certain amount of energy and it's possible for you to run out and get tired. You have a certain amount of attention that you can sustain towards something. And so in all of our decisions, we have to economize. Why? Because Saying yes to anything you say yes to means you have to consider all the other things you're going to say no to. There is no saying yes to A without saying no to B. And so the important question to always ask when we evaluate things, my friend Isaac Morehouse always says this, is compared to what? Compared to what? And it's rarely healthy to consider the value of something in isolation because nothing has its value in isolation. Mm. Something that seems stupid can immediately be realized as brilliant when you compare it to the alternatives. What you consider to be stupid might actually be the best idea that's available to you, right? Something that seems bad or expensive might be the best option that's available. And so when we think about things like inviting family to a wedding or moving this from there to here, it's easy to get idealistic and say, but I, but I want this person there. I want all my friends there. Okay, that's great. Now let's be honest about the fact that you don't have an unlimited amount of money. Your money runs out at a certain point, which means you can only afford to invite so many friends. So what are you willing to say no to in order to say yes to those ideals that you have?
5: Not to mention how much time you're going to spend with the people that are there. Mm -hmm. That was something I experienced with David and I's wedding back in December of 2020. We had a guest list of 170 people that we curated very, very carefully then COVID happened and we had 22 show up. Mm. And even then, having the venue my entire day, I still didn't feel like I got the quality time with everybody that went out of their way to show up
3: mm. because it
5: goes by in the blink of an eye. So you really have to think about who's going to add value to that space? Mm. Who, is, who is going to not be missed mm-hmm. and see how that affects your guest list?
2: Yeah. And quite often we pile more on, whether it's objects, relationships, career, obligations, out of a sense of obligation. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to have the 300-person guest list. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but is it appropriate for you? Only you can decide. For my added value this week, I've got two things for you. One is private, so we'll keep it here on Patreon. We uh, Bex and I did an episode of her podcast, How to Love. It's episode 37. It's called How to Bungle a Threesome. And I am not going to say anything else on this podcast. <laughs> Worst threesome I've ever been a part
7: of.
5: In the notes, I thought it said how to bugle. And I was very concerned. <laughs> I did not know what that was going to lead into. Did you
7: have a couple of no-shows, Josh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash how to love If you're interested in that, we'll put a link to that specific episode in the show notes. Let's keep that between us, y'all. And then... Uh, for my public added value this week, Aaron Wheat's put out this album. Aaron is a friend of our friend Austin Saint John. So Austin Saint John, he uh, works over at Mosaic. He helps with the color correcting on this on this podcast. And total genius, he's a brilliant guy. Well, his friend Aaron Wheats, whom I don't know, but he shared this album. So Aaron covered Nick Drake's album, which is fifty years old now. Pink it's wild. Moon, man, I. I'm so bummed that he only got to make a couple albums. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like he could have done so much more. But anyway, so Pink Moon. Great is, album, though. It really is. And this mm. reinterpretation of it. So it was recorded entirely on a modular synth. So you take this iconic full. I mean, he kind of invented this new age singer songwriter music. It's Nick Drake. As- is the, the grandfather of singer-songwriter music in many ways. Yeah, There are people who were his progenitors as well, but I think we, we tend to look at Nick Drake as the, the pivot point here and his album, Pink Moon, in particular. But the way that Aaron Wheats covered it was on a modular synth, and it is truly beautiful. And what I found metaphorically that works here is this is an album that has worked really well for years, and he's updated it recently making it even better mm. and how perfect is that for our podcast because mm. this podcast has worked really well for years and we've updated the format we've added a modular synth <laughs> that's you to guess my new nickname <laughs> yeah modular synth <laughs> and what, yeah. I, what i will say is it's a beautiful album so i'd love to play you out today with the title track from aaron wheat's new album called pink moon that's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Alabama Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you
4: next time. Peace.